Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, welcome even, Johnny Ward to this week's Chasing Discomfort podcast. Johnny, thanks for coming on. Really excited to have this conversation and sit down with you. Um, but before we dive into that, what does it mean to you to chase discomfort and why? Wow, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but I've been chasing excessive discomfort for a long period of my life. <laughs> So I'm a big believer that you don't really know yourself until you get into those dark spots and see where it is that you stand. Um, and I can't imagine living your life without truly knowing yourself. So that's the only way to meet it. That's what it means to me. Yeah, you're, you've been a busy man, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just looking at the stuff that I've found out online about you and doing some quick research, uh, the first Irishman to visit every country in the world. Uh, you visited the North and the South Pole. You've, you're attempting to climb seven summits with currently four ticked off. Um, you've not, we've just recently completed the three peaks, which I'm, I'm assuming was like a little stroll in the park to a man like you. Yeah. Was okay. And, and uh, yeah, a small task of rowing the Atlantic quite recently that um, I can imagine involves some, some various levels of discomfort. <laughs> yeah, that was discomfort on a next level, to be honest. So this, this rewind it all, this take it a step back, this give everyone an intro to who you are and where you've come from. If you just give us a little high level approach of born and raised and, and your journey, you know, before you yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So my name's Johnny Ward, I'm from Ireland, um, originally born in Galway in the south. But I had some pretty heavy domestic issues, so we moved up north to Northern Ireland, my mum, my sister and me. Um, and then I grew up in Northern Ireland until I was 18. We obviously grew up in a single parent family. We were on the dole, pretty broke. Um, and I always dreamt of being free, uh, but we never had the finances to be flying away on holiday. You know, when your mates are off to Spain and the rich ones are off to Florida or whatever, and I'm just stuck in Ireland the whole time. But it was a happy upbringing, just no money in the family. And then I went to university in England for four years, um, 2002 to 2006. So it was 15 years ago I finished uni. I'm 37 now. And the day I finished my finals at university in the summer of 2006, the next day I flew one way to the USA and I've been traveling the world ever since then. What what was the inspiration behind that ticket to USA? Was that just a, a gut feeling or you, had you planned something out? Um, it all stems from finances, mate, because I always wanted to travel. And as I got older and like when I was 15, 16, 17, I could start to conceptualize the reality that we didn't have much money as a family. Travel seemed quite an inaffordable prospect. And this whole concept of gap years and all these kind of things were starting to become popular. And I just knew my mom wasn't in a position to, to meet for me to do that. So I wanted to travel and I couldn't just backpack because I had no money and my mom had no money. So um, I worked on those summer camps, special needs camp, you know, Camp America type thing where you're a camp counselor and they pay a, a pittance actually, but it allows you to have a like fun summers in the, in the USA and you can travel whatever meager savings you have left in the USA. So I did that and it was great. And it, you literally just kept on the travel from that USA trip onwards. Uh, yeah, kind of. So I did that summer camp and then traveled around the USA for a couple of months, ran out of money, literally like down to my, into my maxed out overdraft and everything, flew back to the UK 
my sister was living in London. She had to give me 20 quid to get the Gatwick Express. And my mom had to pay for my flight from London back to Ireland. I was legit breadline broke. So then I was in Ireland kind of autumn, winter 2006, just after spending the summer and, and, and into the autumn in the USA. And then I literally, like I say, I had zero money. I signed on to the dole myself. Um, and I was Googling, like, how can you travel with no money? What cool shit can you do with your life if you're poor? Uh, I just didn't want to join the world of work just yet. I was 22 and I wanted to have an adventure. And um, I ended up doing this medical research in Belfast where they lock you in hospital for five weeks and try to like sample the drugs on you. So I did that and I wasn't allowed out of hospital for five weeks. I had to take blood like 25 times a day. I still got a scar on my arm for where they took the blood out 25 times a day, twice a day, twice an hour, every hour, all through the night, you take these drugs. And that, and they gave me 2000 pounds, I think pay for that, which was loads of money to me then $3,000. And with those $3,000 then I paid like, I grand of my overdraft off that I built up when I was in the USA. I booked a one-way ticket to Thailand and I paid $1,500 or, or pounds, I can't remember which, to study a TEFL course, a kind of diploma that would allow me to teach English around the world. And then I flew to Thailand one way to study that. The course was actually in Thailand. It was run through Cambridge University, but you could study it in Thailand. So then I flew one way to Thailand with that, used that money to do that, and then I suddenly I was in Thailand. There'll be people listening to this, I'm sure, Johnny, and, and, and I hope you might don't mind me saying this, but you don't seem to worry too much about um, or risks. You, you're obviously, you know, an intelligent guy and you're not going to put yourself in a situation, but, you know, to, to, to make uh, these bold moves around the world, you know, did you, did you really weigh up the pros and cons or were you just, you know, full of life and just wanted to get those experiences under your belt? It's just... No one wants to sit and hear a sob story. It's why I don't talk about my young past so much. You know, I want to travel the world. I want to live a cool life and have an adventure. I can't afford to do it. Here's a way I can do it. Or I can go and get a job and like everyone else. Mm -hmm. So those were my two choices. And I was happy enough to make that choice. Also, I figure medical research is a bit mental, I know. but um, And this is just absolute theory. I've got no idea about medical research. I just figure... By the time they're going to let me take it, it's probably pretty safe. He says we've all those crossed. <laughs> yeah, but I do believe that. So anyway, I did that, and uh, it was fine. <laughs> it was kind of fine. Um, so, yeah, I, I love traveling. I love different cultures, different people. Uh, you know, the foods, the smells, the cities, um, but. You know, how long did it take you to visit every single country in the world? Because that's a big, big travel. Yeah. Um, and I made a real determined effort when I started that journey to every country in the world. I didn't want to be one of these, like, rich white kids who just flies into a country for an hour and flies out. You know what I mean? I really wanted to do it. I knew I was very fortunate to, to be able to have created a life that allowed me to visit every country in the world. I wanted to make the most of the opportunity of being in these places, you know, because I might never go back to some of them. So I tried to average like two weeks per country. So I wanted to do it like properly so I could feel like there was integrity in the journey. Mm. Um, so it took me 10 years from 2007 to 2017. Wow. And I, I bet along the way, many life experiences um, 
Just wild. Plenty that I can share on podcasts and plenty that sh I share with no recording equipment over beers in a pub. <laughs> so um, if you had to take a pick or even like a top three, what's the most favorable countries for you? Well, first of all, I should say there's different countries to travel and to live, right? Because I'm based in Thailand now and I have been ever back since I was broke back in the day when I first, first taught English there 14 years ago and I fell in love with Thailand and then maybe we'll talk about it later, but my blog became quite uh, successful so then I could afford to live anywhere. So I have chosen Thailand to be my home. So of course, in terms of places to live, Thailand was a, the choice that I made. But in terms of places to travel, um, there's a few different ones. There's one actually that's quite interesting for any Brits who are listening to this during COVID lockdown. Um, I would say one of the most beautiful places in the world is the Faroe Islands, which is just off the coast of Scotland, the, the, the northern Scottish islands. It belongs to Denmark, and that's actually on the green list during COVID, right. and no one even bloody knows about it, and it's super beautiful, cheap and beautiful. Mm. And it's like, Faroe Islands is kind of like um, what Iceland was 10 years ago when it was before, now Iceland's on everyone's lips and everyone's off there all the time. Yeah. Faroe Islands is like that, but before all the tourists, it's beautiful. And then there's an island off the coast of Somalia that belongs to Yemen that for a whole host of other reasons, maybe we'll cover, or maybe, maybe we'll not. That's very close to my heart. Um, it's called Socotra. And I think it's probably the most beautiful island in the world. And again, nobody's there. Um, and then a third place, it's another island. I find islands are cooler because even whether it's like a harsh landscape or whether it's like Paradise Island, like Bora Bora, they're kind of beautiful because they're they're the last things to get ruined by humans. So mm. they're all, they always hold a bit more beauty. But there's an island just off the Arctic that's within the Arctic Circle called Svalbard that belongs to Norway, where you can take like um, what do you call them? Ice? What do you call those things that you go on ice? Like a like a moped on ice? Snowmobile? Yeah. Um, you can do like snowmobile safaris and and see polar bears in the wild and all that. And when I went to the North Pole. Uh, that was that's the hop-off point where you take these like Russian military planes into the North Pole from Svalbard, and that's a brilliant island as well. So in in my head, you know, I'm just trying to get uh, around the logistics of you know because there's going to be some countries that I'm sure probably either didn't want you in or made it very hard for you to get in. Um, so tell me about some of those those journeys, you know, the real hard countries to get through or weeks and weeks of visa applications. And Oh, yeah. Well, but, well, I can just cover what Socotra, the island that I think is the most beautiful place in the world. I actually run trips there with my blog now because it's no one goes there and it's so beautiful. It's a shame. Anyway, so I in 2017, I'd been to 195 countries. I had two countries left, right? And I had been saving Norway for my final country just because it's an easy country to go to and all my mates and family and stuff can come and party and celebrate. So I knew that that was just a formality because it's easy to go. You just book your ticket and go. So my second last country was Yemen, which emotionally was my last country because like I say, Norway was a formality. Yes. And I tried and failed to get into Yemen six times over 2017. Um, my fifth attempt, like I, I flew to Oman, which borders Yemen rented a car, drove the whole way across Oman, was trying to bribe the officials on the border. They wouldn't let me in. Um, my my fifth attempt, a few people who I knew also wanted to go to Yemen, we ended up chartering our own plane um, and took off from Oman. And we got turned around midair by the Saudis because of the war going on in Yemen. And then my sixth attempt, 
um, I tried to get a boat there and no one would let me on, right? So I flew back to Oman for my seventh attempt. And I was like, I'm not leaving Oman. It's the country closest to Yemen. That's why I was in Oman until I get into this fucking country. And I, I rented a hotel for two or three weeks in this port called Salala on the Yemeni border. And I heard that there were cargo ships leaving from that port to the Yemeni island of, of Socotra. But actually the island's closer to Somalia than, than Yemen mainland, but it belongs to Yemen. Mm-hmm. And then I just stayed in that town and every day I went down to the port and I begged every official and every owner of every boat and every captain on every boat, like, let me on your boat. Are you going to Yemen? Let me on your boat. Let me on your boat. And everyone just kept saying, piss off. There was a war. It was dangerous to have a white guy. And then I ended up meeting this uh, Yemeni refugee who was living in Oman called uh, Yahya. He was a good friend of mine now. He's who I organize the trips with now. And it turned out Yemen is now, uh, Socotra is now part of Yemen. But back a few generations ago, these islands were kind of autonomous. And Yahya was the grandson of the former king of, of Socotra. And because he was family were powerful, he had to leave when it became part of the became part of Yemen. And he just said to me the day I met him, I met him watching football in this like dodgy bar. And um, he said to me, listen, Johnny, I told him all about my every country thing and it's my last difficult country and all that. And he said, I'm not going to leave Salala until I get you into Socotra. So every day he came and picked me up at 8 a.m. in his car and drove me down to this the port. But now I had him to help me speak in Arabic and everything. And he, he did it. We bribed the Omani officials, bribed the Yemeni officials, bribed the, the harbour, the owner of the boat and the captain of the boat to let me on this cargo ship. So I spent four days on this cargo ship through the Somalian waters and then finally rocked up in Socotra um, with no visa or anything. But they, like, he had made calls and they met me at the at the harbour and said, oh, we're, we're expecting you. And I stayed with his uncle and travelled around Socotra. Wild. At any point, did it come across your mind, like, if it's this hard to get in, how am I going to get out? Uh, I had no exit plan. I could only leave the island when that boat decided to go back. Right. And the weather is bad. So I could, it, it would be at least three, four, five days, but it could be a month. But, mate, you have to think, like, I had, this was 2017. I'd spent 10 years of my life almost full-time travel, like nine, 10 months every year two nights one night three nights one night two nights sleeping in bus stations and and like meeting family staying in the slums in bangladesh and blah blah, blah. and I, this was my second last country so i'd sacrificed all my money and 10 years of my life for this goal and and i just couldn't get into this country so now i kindly had a, a way that might work i was willing to just risk everything for it and i did mm. I can sort of picture that punch in the air moment of you of that um, boat docking. I was crying, mate, and I'm not. I'm not a, like a crier. I'm not a crying guy. And mm. as I was pulling into, because you go through the Somalian waters and it's really dangerous. There's a lot of mercenaries. Um, a lot of Somali pirates kidnap people. Yeah. But because I'm on this little shitty Indian boat full of cockroaches, it's tiny. That uh, and no one knew I was on it. It was kind of safe. The Somalian boats try to capture the, the, the bigger boats that have got valuable cargo on it. But if they had known there was a, I'm Irish actually, but I've also got a second passport, a British passport. If they had known there was a British passport holder on there, I would have been easy pickings for them. So it was quite scary being on the boat. Um, so once I got, I was relieved, obviously not to get kidnapped, but then also I was just so happy. My 10 year journey 
was almost done then when I got on the board. And just as I was pulling in, there's like these this pod of dolphins just came and they were right beside me as I was docking. And I was like, wow, this is unreal. A friend of mine, actually, we talk about the Somalian waterways, they uh, used to do close protection on a few of the oil tankers. There. Right, right. And uh, the question leads me on to, you know, what's the sort of hairiest moment that you've had on your travels where you're, you know, the hair on the back of your neck sticking up and you, you, you really feel threatened? Well, that was a scary one, but actually it was okay in the end. But I had a few very close calls. One, do, you, do you remember the Ebola crisis in 2015 yeah. and 16? Yeah. I was in West Africa. I went to uh, Yeah, yeah. So I was in West Africa then too. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was trying to finish my Africa. There's 54 countries in Africa. And I was working through the West Africa section. And I was in the Ivory Coast. And I had to get into Liberia. Um, and that's where the Ebola crisis was in the thick of it. And uh, the border was closed, kind of COVID style, but before COVID. And I paid some guy to smuggle me across the border. And um, I got caught and got arrested. And we ended up bribing our way out of the police station. I was with my, my Canadian mate who I run my nonprofit charity with now, like five years later. But we ended up bribing our way out of the police station and told them that we'd go back to the capital of Ivory Coast and we're sorry and da-da-da-da. But as soon as I came out of the police station, some guy said, are you guys trying to go to Liberia? And I was like, yeah. He's like, he took you to the wrong border post. I'll take you to a different border post and I'll get you across like in the jungle. And I was like, fuck it, okay, let's do it again. And because it took two days on the bus to get to this border, I couldn't face two days on a bus to get back to the capital. And to cut a long story short, I crossed and I got caught again and arrested again and got back to the same, brought back to the same chief of police. <laughs> <laughs> he was furious, furious. Anyway, I ended up getting summoned to his office and I, so it was like so apologetic, begging him and all this. And I asked him, could I borrow his computer? And I brought up my blog and I showed him, like, I'm not lying here. Look, I'm trying to do every country in the world. And he kind of understood. He was still furious. Mm. He kind of understood. But he gave me a police escort back to the bus station and he bought the ticket and put me on that 48-hour bus back to the capital. I'm sitting on the bus again. And that was a wild couple of days. That bus ended up getting ransacked by bandits in the west of Ivory Coast. And then we were in this convoy and the, con- the bus in front of us smashed into this group of women and like there's dead bodies strewn all over the floor. And there's an awful few days. Wow. That was, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what an experience to, to what not only, you know, travel the world, sample the delights and not so delightful um, experiences of every country that you got to offer, but are you able to just sum up in, in like a sentence or so that, you know, how that's, or has it even changed your perspective on, on life? Yeah, for sure. Um, the way I see it in terms of achieving like a big goal, like that was my life's goal to visit every country in the world at the time. I feel like I'm very fortunate to have a strong passport, free education until I was 18, free healthcare, speak English, and a solid internet connection. So yeah, I've got a shitty background with who my father was in and out of prison and did it and all this, but I don't need to look for a chip on my shoulder to, to, to scream to the world, poor me. I've got every tool I need to succeed. So there's no reason why I shouldn't go out and try to achieve the goal I've set for myself. And that's what I did. You're obviously, well, you come across to me as a very driven guy. 
Um, are you able to sort of put a point in your life or that anchor point or that why to what really drives that tenacity behind you? You know, because from just from the snippets we've been talking about about your journeys, you know, some people on their fourth, fifth attempt into Yemen or being escorted back to the chief of police again would be like, well, you know, maybe I'll skip this one for now. Um, but, you know, you, you're clearly goal driven, you're clearly successful. Um, you know, can you can you pinpoint uh, what fuels that drive to be able to succeed and make sure that you accomplish your goal? Do you know, if you'd ask me, it's quite a dark answer, actually, mate. If you'd asked me that um, six months ago before I rode across the Atlantic, I would have thought, well, for a start, pretty much everything I've achieved is because of how cool my mum is. She was a real, a real hero to me. I've got a real problem with authority. I was always in trouble in school and very disrespectful and stuff. But my mum's always been in my corner telling me I can be whatever I want to be. And, and that really helped me. So first and foremost, that's how I can do anything. What she's done for me, the sacrifices she made um, to allow me to achieve what I've achieved. Um, but then when I was rowing the Atlantic, like it took me to some really dark places. And I, actually, I don't know. I wonder like, there's this concept of being tight, a type A personality where you set your goals and you go for them and, and you get a lot of adulation and, and rever reverence for that, which is quite easy to get caught up in. But actually, along with being a type A personality, there's a lot of selfishness there because you set that goal at the expense of the other people in your life. So it, it's wrong to have the reverence without understanding the critical side of that too. And it, 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 there is selfishness associated with my drive. You know what I mean? Because you don't achieve the big things without people suffering. And that's a shame too. So like I've got a long-term missus and it must have been tough for her. And I didn't really have these kind of introspective, negative realizations until I was on that row because I was stuck in that boat for months with nothing to do. Um, and then I guess also it comes, there must be something out there within me that maybe they're like, whether it's an upbringing thing and the, having no fat growing up with no male figure in my life, it can be a self-esteem issue too. Like, am I trying to prove something to myself, what it is to be a man? Cause I had no, my mom had no male friends. There was no men in my life with no men, men next door neighbors, no father. So like, what am I doing? Trying to prove what it is to be a man. Am I trying to search for what it means? Um, what manhood means. So, and, and yeah, am I trying to, to boost my self-esteem with that? I don't know, but these are things I've been thinking about a lot. In just only in the last six months. Would you say that you're an impulsive type of guy? Um, I don't think any more so than anyone else. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, maybe a bit more than everyone else, but I don't, not to the extreme. Like, my goal setting, I understand, is to the extreme, right? I, I see that with the things that I try to do with my life, but I don't think my impulsiveness is, is to the extreme. I, I don't think so. I just wonder, because I, I believe that, you know, the, our environment's changed for sure, but, you know, all our systems, you know, whether that's nervous system, endocrine systems, you know, they've not changed much in the last 200,000 years. And yeah. as a human being, you know, we evolved to hunt, gather, roam, and, you know, like, there wasn't such thing as an anchor point or a home. It was, you know, you go where the food or the water is, and, you know, that's, that's what spreads such a diverse homo sapien that we are now. And I just wondered if you'd ever sort of looked into your into your DNA or your genetics or your, your makeup and see if there was, you know, any sort of percentage of, of Roma or adventure. Yeah, I have, I have done my DNA tests, actually, the genetic stuff. I have done that. 
Um, well, also I'm Irish mate as well. So we've got a history of, of, of being travelers as a nation. So even in the relative modern history of the last few hundred years, it's in that genetic memory will exist um, from the Irish side of my blood. Um, yeah, but no, my, my genetic makeup was like 50, 60% Irish lineage and 30% uh, British because my father was a, a Catholic and my mother was a Protestant, which is quite tough in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, and then 10% Norwegian or Scandinavian, old school Scandinavian. Um, so yeah, who knows? But for sure, I believe in genetic memory. And well, you can see a sheepdog can be a pet for 10, 10 generations, but it's still going to chase sheep. I haven't never seen it before, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a massive foodie, Johnny. Um, and I want to talk to you about some of the best and worst food that you've sampled around the world. Well, right, I don't eat meat now. I don't eat meat anymore. It's been years and years and years and years since I ate meat. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I turned veg 2016 or 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, food is quite an easy question. There's, uh, there's five countries that I would basically, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but mine is right. Can't type of thing. That's what I feel about the, about the countries with the best food, right? So here we go. Thailand, where I'm based. Fair enough, that's bias. Um, India. And that's also great for veg because you can just whack in paneer instead of meats and it makes no difference. The Indian food's with the flavor rather than the meat. I love meat, by the way. Don't get me wrong. It's just I love animals more. Um, yeah. India, uh, Thailand, Lebanon. Love it. Um, Mexico. And again, that's a great one for veg because you can just whack in beans or whatever instead of the meat. And uh, Italy, of course, pizza and pasta. I just think those five are absolute winners. Yeah, I remember um, having some drunken late night uh, street uh, bike eats in Thailand, um, and yeah, ran, I lost a bet and had to had to eat like a I think it was a frog. <laughs> it must have just been covered in sugar. That it was just so sweet that it was. Uh, oh, yeah, probably had something to do with the twenty odd singers before made it taste. Yeah. Like it and, oh yeah, we had to get out of quarantine and start drinking those again. <laughs> So, so talk to me, because um, obviously, you know, it's very topical at the moment with, with uh, COVID and, and quarantine. Are you in a, you're a hotel in Thailand at the moment? Yeah, but with quarantine in Thailand, it's kind of similar to the UK, but a little bit better. So I think in the UK, if you, have, if you go to a red list country, you have to go to do that state quarantine, right? And, and they lock you up for whatever it is, 12 days or whatever. And you pay 1,700 quid, I think, in the UK. And you don't get to choose your hotel, right? Mm -hmm. So in Thailand... It starts, I think, about 600 quid. And then you can, I mean, there's crazy expensive ones for like 20 grand. But roughly speaking, you pay from 600 quid to about two or three grand. And you choose how much you want to pay. And that's the level of luxury right. that you choose. So I've got like a, quite a nice big room here with my PlayStation and my smart TV. And then in the room, I've got a second bedroom beside with a gym in it. It's got a treadmill and an exercise bike and all that next door, which I've got a connecting door here. Nice. So it's really after being on the row for two months and then dealing with the psychological uh, aftermath of that, I've been really looking forward to being in quarantine, catching up with work and getting back healthy again. And the food's really good here and really healthy as well. So for me, actually, it, it's been a blessing. Mm. I wanted to talk to you about that because a lot of people that I've spoke to that have um, you know, achieved some, some hard goals and, and targets is that they talk about the come down. 
the post sort of blues, if you like, of, of you know, once you achieve that goal, it's almost like there's, there's nothing left. Yeah. Um, are you able to talk me through your thoughts and feelings on that? Bro, it's brutal. Really, really brutal. So I finished my every country thing in 2017, right, on St. Patrick's Day. And um, my sister is quite a spiritual person. And she said to me, and I'm always like, gung-ho, let's do something cool, like life short, blah, blah. She said to me, she came obviously to celebrate with me along with a few other people. And she said to me, like, be, be ready for like a bit of a downer in the, in the days and weeks after because this has been a 10-year thing, full committed. Uh, you're going to feel a bit lost. And I was like, fuck that. I'm going to go and do loads of cool shit that I haven't been able to do because I've had every free bit of money and time I've had has been traveling to every country. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. I got fat for the first time in my life. I developed a bit of a problem with alcohol. I was drinking this for like six, from when I finished in March, 2017, for like a six to nine month period. It was brutal, mate. Like I was bad to my missus. I was drunk, let's say that's 150, 200 days. I must've been drinking three quarters of the days, maybe more if I was actually to tally it up. I've got a cool system to manage my drinking. Now I'll talk to you later about it. Um, I was just eating shit, sugar and, and carbs and just pouring it down my body. And that's not how I've lived my life. And I, and I didn't recognize what it was, to be honest, um, until I came out the other side and I started trying to become the first person in history to do the seven summits and the North Pole, South Pole and every country. No one's done the lows as a package. Mm-hmm. And then I set this new goal for myself. And then I flipped out of it because to climb those high altitude mountains, you need to be in good shape. And I got back in the wagon. Um, but it hit me so bad. Those, because that was such a big thing for me to finish my country's 10 years. It's a long time to work towards something. Um, and then I just went through the same thing the last six weeks after finishing the row. And that's why I'm using the quarantine. No booze, no sugar, full detox. And I'm, that's why I'm very grateful for the quarantine because I feel myself coming out of um, that low point uh, that I felt after the row. That last six weeks was brutal as well. Yeah, I suppose like, you know, you seem like a positive person and where people might let that swallow themselves up and, and play the victim mentality that, you know, you're using it positively and as a reset, a hard reset, you know, yeah. I'm sure you'd much prefer to step out that door and go and get some, you know, real fresh vitamin D on your arms. But yeah, but you know what, bro, I think this is exactly what I need. I think I, I hope I was, if I was offered that, I, I'd hope I'd have the strength to be like, you know, I know I need this two week reset. I need it sugar out of my system, carbs out of my system, work out twice a day, catch up with work, get your shit together. I needed it and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. Let's talk about the row because, um, you know, I, I own a Concept 2 rower in, in, my, ah, nice. in my garage or AKA the pain cave. And yeah. One of my goals is to row a marathon row, which I'm currently sort of chipping away at and just building up the, the distance before I actually jump right in. Well, that's 42k, 42k row. Yeah. You could do that, mate. I saw your Instagram. You're in great, Nick. You could do that, right? You could do it today. I, I probably could, but then I wouldn't be able to walk for about a week after. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm really, uh, again, I'd love to understand the logistics of the row. You know, firstly, how it came about, how that opportunity presented itself, or if you went after it. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of what the shifts looked like of rowing, how you recovered, slept, ate. You know the whole shebang because it, it literally, yeah, if you can just give us like a well yeah explain to people listening exactly what that row was it's actually wild timing i just finished a mammoth blog post 
10 minutes before this call. It's 13,000 words. It's the biggest article I've ever, it's the biggest blog post I've ever written about the whole row. So maybe you can include that link or whatever, however you publish this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of negativity and a lot of positivity because it was a tough struggle for me anyway. So when you row an ocean, it's two hours rowing, two hours resting, 24 hours a day for two months. So you try to sleep in kind of 30 minute bursts in maybe 10, 30 minute bursts per day. Um, so you're really sleep deprived. I really struggled to sleep. I probably slept maybe an hour or two a day for those whole two months. It was brutal. Um, and I also don't come from a rowing background. I was in Thailand at the time. It was, ju it was just last year during COVID. Thailand actually didn't have any COVID. They, they closed the borders. I know the UK was going through the ringer, but we had a normal life in, in Thailand. But I couldn't leave Thailand because if I did, I wouldn't be able to come back in, right? So I did a couple of cool things to stay fit. I wrote, I, I'd never cycled before, right? And I wanted to do an Ironman this year in 2021. So in 2020, I was like, right, I need to get used to cycling. So I rented a bike from this guy in Phuket and I flew to the Malaysian border and I cycled from Malaysia to Laos, like the whole length of Thailand, 2,000 kilometers. Wow. I never cycled before. My ass was in pieces. <laughs> and it took like 12 days. It was, that was brutal as well. Mm. But I was quite fit from that. Um, and then I did this. I, 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 I've got this mate who used to be fat, this Irish guy in Bangkok who I drink with, a lovely, lovely guy. And I said, like, listen, let's get fit during this COVID shite. And I just finished the, the cycle, so I was fit anyway. I was like, I'll train you, and we'll do a marathon at the end of the year. And then we trained every day. To be fair to me, committed to it from being fat. He was doing 5Ks, 10Ks, 20Ks every day. The weight fell off and he's loving life again, laying off the booze, laying off the McDonald's. Changes you as soon as you commit to it. Yeah. And then the, the marathon was cancelled, right, because of COVID, because they couldn't have people together. And, and he's like, what are we going to do? I was like, fuck it, mate. Let's fly up to the north of Thailand. And instead of doing a marathon, we'll run from Chiang Mai to Chiang Rai. It's 200 kilometers. And then we did, so then we did this ultra marathon. Um, and he ended up in hospital. His feet were just, we, he finished it. He completed it. Yeah. Absolutely legend. His feet were just a mess. If you read the blog post about that, I think I included a photograph of his feet. They're wild. Wow. Anyway, so we trained for that before we did that. It was great crack. And um, so I was really fit. And then out of nowhere, I did the marathon de Sabla a couple of years ago, which is the ultra, that ultra marathon through the Sahara Desert. That's Six marathons days in the Sahara. And I met one of the days when I was running one of the marathons, I was on a sand dune, it was brutal. And I met this Marine and I ran the rest of the, the, uh, the marathon that day with this Marine. And he told me he had rode across the Atlantic the year before. And I was like, whoa, that's mental. And rowing is normally just, he was quite posh as well. It's normally just for posh people rowing. It's like a posh guy's thing. Oxford and Cambridge springs to mind, isn't it? Oh, it's the same as climbing these mountains that I'm climbing. It's just all posh people. Um, and I was like, that's cool. And he, and he told me to join this Facebook group, which if anyone else is interested in rowing oceans, it's called the Ocean Rowing Society. You'll see it on Facebook. Incidentally, depending on how much we talk about it, I don't recommend rowing oceans. But if you want to do it, do it. This, join this Facebook page. It's fucking awful. But if you want to do it anyway, despite my advice, join that Facebook group. So I joined that Facebook group a couple of years ago. And then out of nowhere, just after finishing that ultra marathon, there was a Facebook post saying we need two crew members to finish. We've got there's a crew of four rowing the ocean. We've only got two. We need two more. Does anyone want to do it? 
when I applied, I think like 600 people applied or whatever. And because of my blog, I know like it's not my charming personality. It's because of my blog, I know that they probably thought, listen, we can get a bit more promotion if we use Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, so they chose me. And then they announced that actually each of the two people who joined got to pay 20 grand to, to, to do it. And I'm supposed to get married. I was supposed to get married in February and the row started in January. And I had already postponed the wedding once because of COVID. And I applied and everything without telling my missus. And then I got selected and I had to say to my missus, listen, I'm going to have to postpone it again. I've been selected for this row. So then I did that. I flew back to the UK. <laughs> I bet that was an easy conversation. Well, I still haven't seen her since. That was in, that wow. was in December. It's July now. Wow. Because of all the delays. Like my row was, a, a, it was just a litany of, of disasters and delays because of COVID and Brexit and all. Mm. So I, I saw her out my window for the first time the day before yesterday. She's in Bangkok. Um, and I flew back to London, did some sea survival courses because I've never, I can't swim and I've never been in an ocean. I've never been on uh, a rowboat or anything before. And then I went, I joined a gym in Bangkok in a couple of weeks and did that, that concept two thing that you have. That's mm. quite nice actually. <laughs> Retrospectively speaking, it does fuck all for rowing an ocean, actually. It was a complete waste of time, but I killed myself on that every day anyway, thinking it might help. It didn't. And then I was due to – it was very fast. Within getting selected for it, six weeks later, I was doing a sea survival course in the south of England. I flew back from Thailand. And then a week after Christmas, we were supposed to leave, and then Brexit struck, and we couldn't get the boat out of England to get the boat – the ocean rowing the Atlantic starts in the Canary Islands – off the coast of Africa, belonging to Spain. Yeah. And you go across the Atlantic and you finish in the Caribbean. And uh, we couldn't get the boat because of Brexit. And then that COVID strain, that UK strain, remember all that shit? It's kind of still dragging on now, actually. Um, that means we it, all flights from the UK weren't allowed to land in Spain. So we also couldn't get to Spain. So we ended up flying to Ireland and then flying to Spain. And anyway, it all got delayed and delayed. And we ended up starting uh, the first week of March. And then it was pretty awful a couple of months after that. <laughs> Just um, so, what was the total distance? Five thousand kilometers or something. Wow! And you go slow. It's slow. You do. You, it's like almost walking speed. And we left in Canary Islands on March fourth or whatever it was, something like that. And we did twenty-four hours. And it's a long story, but. There was a lot of mistakes made by the company that operated it, right? So we were off to a really bad start. And in those first 24 hours when I got on, when we left the Canary, when we left uh, Lanzarote, the waves were like fucking massive. And I was getting smashed in the face. Like all these waves were hitting us head, like on the beam. So that basically you're trying to go this way and the waves are hitting you on the side. It was awful. I'm soaking wet and freezing cold. And then I didn't know, I didn't know how to put my gear or anything on because we hadn't done any practice runs. So all my cl- I zipped up the, the gear properly, so I'm just piss wet through all my gear. So then when I'm going into the cabin, I'm just trying to fall asleep, but I'm freezing. And I didn't know how to use how to hydrate the food. I didn't know how to use the heater. No one had showed me anything. I was so disorganized. And I was thinking after those first 24 hours, I was like, this is fucking awful. I'm actually going to die. First of all, I'm going to die. And if I don't die, it's going to be just the, literally the worst thing imaginable. I've this has already been the worst day of my life and I've got two months of this and then I woke up 
I went into the um, the cabin at like 6 a.m. after finishing my, or maybe 4 a.m. after finishing my last night shift, two hours. So that gave me two hours off in the cabin and I can't sleep because I'm stressed and anxious. So I just sit there for like two hours thinking, fucking hell, I'm freezing, blah, blah, blah. And then I open up the cabin hatch at like 6 a.m. or whatever it was and the sun had risen and it was light. And it gives you that kind of energy boost, doesn't it? You feel like, okay, the world's not going to end. I can get through the day. And I was doing it with one of the guys from Dirty Sanchez, if you remember that MTV show. Yeah. I was, I was rolling with, with Pritch. Yeah. Um, and he was sitting in the front. I was like, what's going on, Pritch? And our boat had broken. The seats that you were supposed to sit on had snapped. The, the runners that they were on had snapped because the fucking useless boat company. I mean, the, the company that we went with hired a boat builder who had never built an ocean rowing boat before. So anyway, it failed after 24 hours. Wow. So we had to call the Spanish Coast Guard. And we're just bobbing around in the middle of the ocean and the Spanish Coast Guard had to come out and they had never seen an ocean rowing boat and they're in this massive power boat. So they come up to us and the waves are smashing us and they fucking smash into us and break open our boat. And then the, now it's not structural, the structural integrity had gone, it was leaking. So we have to get towed back to Fort Aventura and that took like eight hours, like bouncing on the fucking ocean. <laughs> so I get thrown in the bloody uh, luggage cabin because three of them, the cabin's tiny, really tiny. It's like the size of underneath the kitchen. Imagine your kitchen table or your dining room table. It's mm. like you have to live, it's the space under your dining room table, that's the size of the cabin, right? And you have to be in there for two months. So only three, only three of them could fit in there. So I get shoved up the front where the luggage cabin is. I'm bouncing up and down on these waves. I'm soaking wet. I'm getting thrown in the air. And I'm just thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? It was an awful 24 hours. Now our boat's broken. This guy's just smashed into us. This, the, the cabin I'm in is leaking. And we're eight hours towed to Fort Aventura. And then that's – the whole thing was tough. But during that, that tow, I was just thinking to myself, and I really don't hope that I'm not a quitter, right? I, I hope with all the hope in my heart that I would never be a quitter. And I was just thinking to myself, please let this boat – be so damaged that they can't fix it in Fort Aventura so I don't have to fucking do this expedition because it's awful. Um, and we got to Fort Aventura at nighttime. It was pitch black. We had nowhere to sleep. It was freezing cold. Got this, got someone, drove us into this weird house that we stayed in for a night. And then the next day, I had a shower, go down to the jetty where we'd got off to examine the damage. And I was hanging apart because that, because that Spanish Coast Guard smashed into us. And um, I was thinking, I didn't even know if we were going to try to fix it. But then, yeah, the skipper was like, we're going to try to fix it. We'll leave when we can leave. And I was like, fuck, okay, right, here we go again. So how long was the delay before you set off for the second time? We ended up hiring this guy who fixed carbon fiber on um, fishing boats in Lanzarote mm. in Fort Aventura. And he fixed it like this patch job. And then I found some guy who sold aluminium. So we replaced the runners with just aluminium that we we drilled on ourselves. And I've never been across an ocean or never been on a sailboat, never been on a rowboat. And I was thinking, like, this is just a fucking piece of aluminium. Is this going to be okay? Like, what well, if it breaks in the middle of the ocean? Then what do we do? Actually, the boat breaking down within the first 24 hours was actually fortunate because we were still just about within the sphere where the Coast Guard could come to us. But if we're in the middle of the Atlantic, when you're in the middle of the Atlantic, you're closer to the space station than you are to any land. 
So like, no coast guards can get you, no helicopters can get you. You're just stuck out there. Mm. Anyway, the question it took a week. We were there for a week, wow. um, getting fixed. So was there any? Um... Like, did the boat stay upright the whole time? Was there any sort of capsizing moments? or? So then we left after a week, right? And um, the way the ocean rolling boats are designed is they shoot upright themselves. Yeah. And that's why the structure, I mean, the structural t integrity of every boat is crucial, of course. But for an ocean rowing boat, which is really small, like you could fit it in your front room, um, it's really important because you're out there alone. So, and the waves are like, sometimes the waves are like, multi-story buildings and you're this tiny rowboat mm. so they're built that they're all compartmentalized each section so that and it's top heavy with air the section so when you go over it, it should come right back up again i mean all your shit gets fucked all over the place because you're upside down but it comes back and there was just two times that i was actually rowing both times it nearly happened that we were like i could feel it going and going and going and you're like you're clipped in and you're fall, falling out of the boat and you're like okay this is it this is the time and then just it's really hard to tip it. It has to be more than 90 degrees because of the way they're really well engineered shape-wise. And then it just plummets down. You're like, fucking hell. And twice that happened. But no, it never went over. Yeah. And then we just kind of got into it. Like it was two months then, just two hours on, two hours off. And it was just the worst two months of my life. It was just awful. As in like the just the physical exertion and, and well physically because i was fit and i was in really good shape after doing that, that trans thailand cycle and the ultra i was fit so physically it was far 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 easier than i thought mm. i would say physically it was like a two out of ten or a three out of ten all right like you could do it you you personally like the shape you're in you could do it easily but i'm saying like if you went into the pub watching the England game, all the guys drinking beers, you could take at least half of them tonight and they could do it. Right. You don't have to be fit at all. It's far easier than people think. Like my story went viral and the BBC picked it up and all that. And I felt like a fraud because it's not physically that hard. You know, like visiting every country in the world took so much sacrifice and money and stress and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyone who does that has earned the accolades but with rowing an ocean it's not as physically hard as people think it's honestly not the sleep deprivation is hard yeah and like not showering and not being able to stand up and not being able to uh, take you don't take one step for two months your calf muscles the atrophy like everything disappears so all that shit's hard shitting in a bucket in front of your mates every day is hard um but all that was manageable hard but manageable the physical side was i would almost say easy but the mental side of being stuck in that tiny, tiny, tiny space, tiny, and having zero personal space, like at any one point when you're in the cabin, if I lie down, the guy beside me lies down, like you're completely against each other. So you don't have any mental escape at all. Mm. And it's so claustrophobic and you're so isolated out there. And it takes, it's months, you know, not if you climb a mountain or whatever, it's normally weeks. And even then, you still have space. You can fucking get out of your tent and, and see beautiful landscape. Like, you just see ocean and air. It's all you see for months on end. Um, and no escape to think think to yourself. You know, like, at the end of the stressful day, you can close your door and be like, fucking hell, that was hard. Like, process what's going on. And you just don't get any of that escape. And it just builds up and builds up and builds up. And it was really tough. So what sort of dynamic um, techniques did you sort of bring into play to help you deal with that or, or or did you not was it just literally you know you, you had no other 
you know, there's no no way out. You're here now. You're in the middle yeah. of the Atlantic. For me, mate, like, because I like to push myself, right? So I wanted to to do this crazy challenge where I push myself. I really want to find where my quitting point is because I do all these crazy things and I want to I, I want to feel what it's like. I often drag my friends into this stuff, and sometimes they quit and sometimes they don't. And I'm almost jealous of them quitting in a weird way. Mm. Because I want to find out where my point is. I'm like, fucking hell, I can't, this is too scary or too difficult. Or like, I just, I'm not ready. I can't compete anymore, right? And I've never reached that point. And I want to keep pushing myself till I find that point where I'm like, oh, whoa, that's too much for me. And I felt like this is the kind of thing that would push me to my limit physically. So I was really disappointed with how that wasn't the case physically, right? But I personally have avoided all these silent retreats that people go on i completely understand the virtues of them and i think people who do that shit are absolute legends you know that stuff you're not allowed to speak for seven days you're not allowed to make eye contact for seven days you have to meditate or at least deal with your inner thoughts for seven days and that gives me so much anxiety thinking about that thinking about all my weaknesses and, and mistakes and, and i've made many um and selfishness and the selfish decisions that i've made over my life and i've always avoided those things so even though i kind of had spent years lying to myself about what pushing myself was by putting myself in those crazy physical challenges in a weird way, despite those being really tough and ended up in hospital and you're bleeding, da, 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 that had almost become part of my comfort zone. I know I can throw myself into those fucked up challenges and come out the other side. In a weird way, that's my comfort zone now. But to do one of those seven-day retreats in Burma or whatever scares the shit out of me. And I'd never done that. And then inadvertently... I had signed up for what I thought was going to be the biggest physical challenge in my life. Turned out it wasn't a physical challenge. I had signed up for essentially a fucking two-month silent retreat, having avoided a seven-day one my whole life. So I wasn't prepared at all for it. Mm. And I really struggled with it. Really, really struggled with it. How did, um, how did you guys bond? Did you guys know each other before? No, never met them. I can just to, just trying to soak in exactly what you're saying because you know like living in such close proximity to to four guys that you you barely even know you know you don't know if you're going to be four best buddies or you know everyone hates each other and you're splitting up fights um you know. yeah we, that's definitely like the dynamics definitely something i wouldn't recommend going with strangers actually but fortunately we had a good team the Dirty Sanchez guy is actually a really lovely, kind, low-key guy. I, know, I don't have anyone seen Dirty Sanchez. I know he's mental on there. And when we partied in Antigua, he is mental, don't get me wrong. But he's a lovely, kind, humble guy. So he was great. The skipper, Billy, who owned the company that organized the row, um, from a professional standpoint, they're chaos. I wouldn't use them again. But as a, as a human being... He's also a lovely guy. He's a firefighter. He's the kind of guy who leads from the front when there's a shitty job that needs done. He'd be the first guy to fix it. He wouldn't, even though he's the boss, he could make me do it, but he wouldn't. So he was a lovely guy. And then there was an old guy who was 62, who was my row partner, and he wasn't fit enough really to to row the ocean. He, like his body was breaking down, and I got really frustrated with that in the first few weeks because I wanted to break the world record, right? And I could feel the tension in me building up and. The, probably the biggest lesson I learned from that whole thing about my ego and about expectations was that always I'm, I want to kill myself in anything I do, absolute maximum level. And for some reason, I always assumed that everyone wanted to do that and, and everyone should do that. Otherwise, what's the point? And through this row, I like 
was getting more and more frustrated with Martin, but I didn't tell him because I know that you're on this isolated boat. You've got to keep your um, things amiable. And I had a few, I bit at him a few times. It was very minor. And then I, one, one night I was thinking like, this isn't fair. Like this guy didn't sign up for Johnny Ward's world record expedition. You know what I mean? He's not on Johnny Ward's trip. I'm, I'm as much on Martin's trip. He, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he doesn't have to adhere to the, the criteria that I believe we should be working and what I believe maximum effort is and what I believe pain thresholds are. Like he's not on my trip. And that was very arrogant of me both then and looking back on loads of the physical shit I've done and I've made my friends do with me. I always were like forcing them into being on my expeditions and that's so not on. And that was a huge lesson I learned there. It's very humbling even to talk about it now. It's very humbling. Um, and once I broke through that, I was happy enough for Martin to make whatever effort he considered the effort that he wanted to, to, to put in. Mm. And why should he do any more or any less? And then I continued to kill myself um, throughout it. I still can't. It was two months ago I finished now. I still can't grip with my left hand. Wow. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, uh, like, like you say, you know, the biggest mental challenge you've ever faced. Oh, without doubt. And uh, I just... I'm just wondering, you know, like um, plopped in the middle of the ocean. I'm sure there was some some very dark moments, you know, that we've touched on. But I'm also sure, you know, was there any interactions with wildlife? You know, some of the sunsets and sunrises that you must have seen. You know, you must, you know, like the, the universe lines up all these different moments for us. And there must have been points when you're sitting on this boat, you know, you're, you're a tiny little dot just bobbing up and down and like you say, so you're in a relatively slow place across the sea. And, you know, was there some sort of pinch yourself moments where you just have to just stop and take it in and, and soak it all up? Do you know what, Jay? Honestly, I hate to say this because I'm a positive guy, but it was just misery. <laughs> honestly. It was, it was, and I'm not a miserable person. I love my life. I love putting myself through physical things. I love it. And I find joy in testing myself. But that was anything else you do, risking death, climbing mountains, ultra stuff. There's there's pain that you've never, that unless you've done that kind of stuff, you can't comprehend the level of pain you're in. Mm. Sometimes you're almost passing out with the pain. But there's joy to counteract it and, it and pride and achievement. But with this, I find no joy, no pride, no achievement. It was just misery for me. Mm. There must have been a a big release though once you you touch land again yeah the release wasn't quite when i touched land it was the day before when i saw land okay. it was still relief finishing it was also still great of course literally speaking yeah. but the huge outpouring of emotion for me was like 36 hours before or whatever when we first saw antigua mm. and i wasn't ready for it and i was like fucking hell i couldn't believe it like huge rush of endorphins like screaming like over the top americans you know you can't control yourself it was like uh was that because has there been thoughts that you thought you'd, you might never see land again? All the way up until, so 5,000 kilometers-ish, it's roughly 3,000 miles-ish, right? So up until 1,000 miles to go, so the first two-thirds from zero to 2,000 was just hell. Actual hell, darkness, 24 hours a day, hated it, regretted it. But it had, there's no way off, you're stuck. And once I hit the 1,000-mile mark, the reality was that it was more tangible and, and feasible that I would realistically probably finish it now. 
Whereas those first 2000 miles, I was like, this just is going on forever. It's weeks and months. Like I'm never, we're, we're making such slow progress. I couldn't contemplate and certainly couldn't risk contemplating the finish point because I was so down that to, the, to try to visualize stepping off and drinking champagne and calling your loved ones that to, 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 to contemplate that joy when you're in such a low point, I would find like the, the, the space between that joy and where you are now, that would have been too much of a weight for me to bear. So I didn't contemplate finishing at all until I got to the thousand miles to go mark. And then I was on a big countdown. Yeah. It sounds like uh, such a roller coaster. It was hard, man. Did you guys have any comms? Did you have like a satellite phone? Yeah, we did. We had a sat phone and I promised myself, like right from day one, I was in, in misery. And hmm. um, like I say, I, I, I'm not a crying type guy, but like I probably cried maybe four or five days in a row. Having not cried four or five days in a row, I would say since I was fucking two years old. Do you know what I mean? And I would be trying to nap and like I would just have a tear run down my my cheek and my fucking hell i am miserable it's really difficult to articulate how miserable and dark it was Mm. um so i didn't use we had a sat phone but i promised myself i wouldn't use it until i got to the halfway point right again that would just put me in touch i did have um telegram messenger so i could tell my missus and my mom that listen i'm still okay it's shit but i'm alive and we're making progress albeit slow but I wouldn't speak to them until the halfway point, which was tough, but it would have been tougher for me the way I process difficulty to speak to them every day. So I left a month, more than a month before I spoke to them. And again, that, that milestone, was that like a help chipping away at the goal that, you know, you are getting close yeah, to your, your exactly. own halfway point now? And a reward also for, for getting through like the first, the worst of it really. Mm-hmm. So the first month, was the worst month of my life. The second month was my second worst month of my life, but there was a big gap between those two, how bad they were. Yeah. The second was still awful, but the first was just, it's difficult to explain. Like if I felt like that, like I would, I don't know. I'm in the same way that the etymology of words like love and depression, I think people use them too commonly because what, what, what I, what love means in the picture that, that I get painted with, the word love might be different to you and depression is the same, right? So who's to say what, what is represented by those words? Cause they're just words, whereas emotions are something real. But I would say that's absolute the depths of depression, how I felt that first month. Like if I felt like that over a long period of time, I can completely see why, why people kill themselves because it is the worst feeling. And tell you what happened once mate, the worst I felt out of all that badness after about, let's say a week or whatever, you're in your routine, so you've got everything sussed out. You know how to make your food and uh, still shit, but at least you know what's going on. And I was really struggling to sleep because I was so miserable, right? And finally, after about 10 days or whatever, I fell into like an REM deep sleep for the first time. Still only 30 minutes, but finally I actually fell asleep. And I had to be woken up for my shift and no one ever had to wake me up because I was always fucking awake. It was brutal. So um, someone had to wake me up saying like, Johnny, we're on. For the first time, I was like, thank you, God. And I could feel someone pushing my back, Martin, right? Who's going to come on the shift with me? And I was completely out of it. And I was like, and I woke up and I was like, oh, what? where am I? I was like, Da-da-da. And I had no idea where I was. And then I was like, oh, fuck. I'm on like week two of this fucking thing. Please, God, tell me this is 
not true and I'm still in my dream. The worst feeling I've ever had in my entire life being like, I know where I am and I don't want to be here and I'm only 10% in and I've got two more months of it. Fuck. That was awful. What do you tell yourself in that situation? What's, what's the ego saying inside, inside the brain? My ego had gone. That's, I, this is a thing about the row, right? So I'm very negative about it and I don't like to be negative. So there was, it smashed my ego, which was really good. It gave me an opportunity that I don't think I'll ever have or anyone. I know that's a big statement. I don't think anyone, apart from people who've rowed an ocean, have the privilege of having weeks and months to self-reflect. You know people take 10 minutes a day to do it, and it's hard sometimes to steal 10 minutes because life comes fast. And then people do these silent retreats. You get a week to do it, maybe two weeks, maybe even a month if you're rich. I had two months to do nothing but think about who I am, what I am, what I've done, what I want to do. And that is a huge privilege and a huge opportunity to be able to work through those emotions and feelings. And I can't think of any other chapter of anyone's life where you have such an elongated period to go through, to work through those thoughts and emotions. So I'm very grateful for that, even though it was a fucking brutal lesson. Um, I'll never get another opportunity to, to, to have that. And, and so that is the, the positive side of it. They talk about it, don't they? Like, uh, it's almost like pit stops of life, you know, and, and having these periods of self-reflection, you know, really gives you the, the chance to be able to look back and, like you say, where life gets so fast, sometimes we, it's not that we, we can't, or it's not that we want to, it's that we can't put the brakes on. Yeah. So in a minute, let's take an aerial view, right? You know, and you, you restructure or you re-dice or you reprioritize. Um, so it's, it's amazing to hear that, you know, what you initially signed up for was this daunting physical challenge that actually yeah. wasn't, you know, because of your general level of fitness and, and also the, the, the speed that you was going at has now turned into this whole re self-reflection tree. I know. And yeah. I commend you, Johnny, for speaking with your, your candid honesty. You know, it's great to hear, uh, you know, talk about so fluently and so openly the way you're talking about, you know, the ups and downs literally of, of being on that boat. So, um, yeah, amazing for you to open up for it. Yeah, I would say, honestly, and I mean this, for anyone who's thinking about rowing an ocean, I would say like a few things. If you really want to do it, if it's in your if it's in your psyche that you've dreamt of it and you've seen people doing it and stuff, of course go and do it. Of course go and do it. But if you're just thinking about something cool to do in your life, like a cool expedition that's going to take quite a long time and you need to be fit or you think you need to be fit for, don't do it. Go and climb a big mountain. Go and travel across a country or cycle across a continent. That's cooler. And there's joy in those things. So if you're weighing up which to do, I honestly would say steer clear of the ocean rowing because there's a lot of misery, whereas the other stuff is more, a lot more fun. Which brings us nicely on to your unfinished challenge. Currently four out of seven summits completed. Yeah. And I see that you've announced that you're going to be hitting the big one, Everest, yeah. in 2023. Yeah, you're coming. <laughs> never say never. Never say never. I see, um, I've always been fascinated by mountains um, and just, I suppose it's that, it's that balance. You know, you, you literally are taking your own 
survival sometimes outside of your own control. And what I mean by that is the elements. You know, there there could you could you could summit Everest. You could be making that call and bang, you know, like a a, a crazy wind could come through and. You know, I, I know, unfortunately, a lot of people have perished on that mountain and it's it's not something that I know I'm I'm smiling and, and hint of a of a laugh there in, in my comment. But, you know, it's a very, very real threat. Um, one that yeah. I mean, Irish died last last season. Yeah, and I, and I know they don't recover the bodies, do they, from the mountain? Or if they do, it's very rare that they'll come in and do a sweep and there'll be certain parts of the climb that you cross, you'll look down and, you know, you'll see those fallen bodies that are still there. Some, some of them remained, um, you know, preserved by the ice, etc. So, you know, that is a very harsh reality of, of what can go wrong. Um, however, I do appreciate that, you know, uh, I've just, I follow the Wim Hof uh, method. So I've been doing his breathing and the ice baths and, and I have this internal drive in me that I want to go and do one of his winter camps. So I think I need to go and tick that box first, go and walk up the mountain in just my shorts in Poland before I even start considering whether Everest is a is a you know realistic achievement for myself or not. But are you finding a lot of benefit from that? Um, the cold I found it really energised me in the mornings, um, and you know that's not just doing it in the summer. That's in January when the outside temperature is minus three and it hits you and you. <gasps> You know the first. You don't have to add any ice to the bath, then, do you? No, definitely not. Definitely. Yeah. Not. I mean, I own a 500 litre whiskey barrel that I filled up with 10 kilos of ice yesterday. Yeah, I saw it. I was more frustrated and gutted that it wasn't cold enough. Then, you know, we we was going in the sea all through January. Um, I live 20 minutes from South End, um, right. and I went down to Chalkwell, and one day it was three degrees. And I, and I said to the wife, well, if it's three degrees, I've got to do at least three minutes. But ideally, I this this try and double it. This gets six. And uh, within a minute, my whole body was like uncontrollably shaking. My teeth were chattering. I could stop it, but then it would start again. So the cold's been a revelation for me. Um, you, you know, I, I've had, uh, from from growing up, I've always had this, Put this negative stigma around mental health or if anyone said oh i'm stressed or if i'm depressed you know i, I worked with uh fuel tanker drivers and they was all around at an age group where this anxiety or depression would come in and where i was so young i was in my mid to late 20s i just really couldn't understand it so you're like what have you got to be depressed about what have you got to be stressed about like you're not in afghanistan ducking ak-47 bullets from the taliban you've got a nice job you got a family. You should be grateful for all these things. And, I'm, and it's only been really, I suppose, the last two or three years where I've had this little catch up with myself. And I say to people, I'm like a champagne bottle. So I will harvest and harvest feelings until the cork's bubbling and then pop. You know, I spray everything out and I either have to go and take it out in a, in a real tough gym session or just go and lose myself on a two, three hour run. And I found this sort of mechanism of, of dealing with it that way. But the cold acts as a reset. If I don't do it once every week, I struggle uh, mentally. Um, the breathing, I've, I've been on and off with it, but more recently I've been on with it. And I just find this clarity in the mornings. Like I've been taking some advice from, um, Sounds like I've been talking to him, but just his books, Jordan Peterson, The Twelve Rules of Life. 
yeah. is about if you can treat yourself like a dog. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, well, yeah, yeah. One of those rules, you wake up, you stretch in the morning, and then straight after my stretching, I've been doing three, minimum of three rounds of the breathing. And, you know, I've got to a point now, I'm over four and a half minutes of breath hold in that final round. Um, you know, and doctors will tell you anything over four minutes is potential brain damage. Uh, you know, your spleen's dumping EPO, the Lance Armstrong cocktail of stuff because it's you, you're not getting oxygen. So, you know, when I talk about it, I'm passionate about it because I'm convinced that if you could get everyone to try it once, that, um, you know, that someone would find at least one benefit from it. And for me, it's that mental clarity in the morning. I'm so much more productive. I'm efficient. I feel like I'm a better husband, father, you know, just a, just generally a better person. But, um, yeah. Mountain peaks. Yeah. Well, fuck. The thing about the thing that's upsetting both about the every country thing and the mountains stuff is it's, it's all bloody expensive. You know, like I'm a working class single parent upbringing, and I hope that my blog and my social media and just my existence shows people you can come from those kind of upbringings and crack into the posh boy stuff, which is epic stuff. Um, but they don't own it. It's there for us too. But the reality about that also is that it does take a lot of sacrifices because it's expensive, Everest. Like, North Pole is expensive. So there's two sides. You have to be ready to put your body on the line, but you also, and training as well, put your body on the line every day and then ultimately on the actual expedition. Um, but you also have to be willing to make a lot of sacrifices uh, financially, which means, like, unless you're minted, it means, like, People dream of Rolexes and, and bigger houses and, and nice cars. And like nice things are nice. I don't deny that too. I also like that kind of stuff. But you can't have your cake and eat it. Like if you've got a normal income, those, those like Everest basically, the cheapest you can get it is about 35 US, which is about 25 grand sterling, right? But if you go with a Western operator, it's about 50 or 60 US, so about 40 sterling. Um, and North Pole is about 20 grand, right? When I did, I did a marathon at the North Pole, it was $20,000, I think, about 15 sterling. And um, those numbers are obscene, but they're just about affordable over a, a multi-year period if it's your dream. You know what I mean? For Even for a normal person on normal salary, like a nurse or a teacher, if you had like a 10-year dream, you can pay 30 grand for something like that. Yeah. Um, but they, it takes a lot of sacrifice. That means don't get means not upgrading your phone. It means not not um, shopping in Waitrose. It means not having a nice car. But that's the sacrifices you want to make if you want to achieve your goals. So there's two sets of sacrifices that it require. Um, and I'm prepared and have been doing sacrificing both those things for for 15 years of my life, and I'll presume I'll continue to sacrifice them all for the rest of my life. Um, and I. And then also you're, you mentioned about the elements, you also risk failure. And there's, that's a, a good lesson for ego too, because if you run an ultra um, or anything along those lines, or Ironman, something legitimately difficult, uh, if you train enough, let's say six months for most physical things is enough training, um, unless you get really un unlucky and gore in your ankle, 99% your training will equal success. So all that suffering you've put in, all those early mornings and good diets will be worth it because you've achieved your goal. A really scary thing with mountains is that you can make that financial sacrifice and make that physical sacrifice. And then when it comes to summit day, the weather's shit and you can't do it. And that's really good for the ego. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, well, talk about controlling the controllables, right? And the yeah, weather exactly. is definitely one that's out of our control. Um, so, out of the summits that, that you've summited, the, the four that you've done, can you just whittle through those four? Yeah, well, one of them's really easy. It barely counts. It's Kilimanjaro in Africa. That's a fun thing to do with your friends. Yeah, I would recommend everyone does that with their friends or even their misses. It's nice to walk in the park. Summit takes about five or six days. Summit day is a little bit hard, but that was before I wasn't. I was back when I was young. I hadn't trained or anything. If you if you got any, if you can run a ten k in an hour or less, you've got no problem with Kilimanjaro. Yeah. So that's one. Um. Then the uh. Highest one in Europe, a lot of people think it's Mont Blanc, but it's actually Mount Elbrus in uh, Russia. Okay. And that's a really cool mountain. That's, basically, you should, you should start with Kili, see if you like it. Next one you should do is Elbrus, which is a similar height, but a lot harder. It's in the snow. People die there. Snowstorms come in. When I went up, there was a full snowstorm visibility. It's like a meter. Um, and both of those are affordable. They're both about two grand. Oh, right. Okay. So that's great for people. Yeah. Um, actually, Elbrus, if you use the Russian operator that I used, I think it's like 800 quid because there's no Western offices. And, I, and I, it's beautiful. It's in the south of Russia in the Caucasus region. Beautiful experience. Really cool mountain. Um, then one is South America. There's a, a mountain called Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain outside the Himalayan range. It's really quite high altitude. So you need a bit of experience to do that or be pretty fit. And I failed that once because of the weather. Trained for six months, paid all the money, spent, it's about three weeks, that expedition. Mm. And summit attempt, the wind came in and there was no summits for three weeks and we had to get off the mountain. And, and you have to wait. And the thing about mountains, it, you have to wait a whole year before you can try again because yeah. you have to do it in the season. And that was an awful experience. I was on a real run of success. I'd finished my countries. I'd made my first million off my blog. I'd... Um, was things were going well with my messes. I'd just done the North Pole Marathon. I was feeling like I could do anything. Um, and then I went to do Aconcagua and I failed and I really struggled with the failure emotionally. Really, really struggled with it. Mm. Um, and you should never wish your life away. But I was just wanted to fast forward 12 months until I could go back and try again. Yeah. And the following year, I did go back and I did go up and I did succeed. But my buddy, who I do a lot of my mountains with, went blind on the mountain from altitude. And got helicoptered off. He's okay now. He lives in Chiang Mai in Thailand as well. It took him right. six months to recover. He went full blind. Wow. When I came down off the mountain, like he was in hospital. And then we went drinking to celebrate for me and commiserate for him. And he's got like a, sunglasses and a stick and all hard stuff. Um, due to the, the temperature? It, no, it was just, it was the lack of oxygen getting to his nervous system. Okay. And that manifests itself in different ways. And it manifested in his case not sending the oxygen to the optic nerve or something like that. Right. Yeah. So then I did that one. And then the, uh, the fourth one I did was um, one in Australasia. And it's actually in in a uh, wild, wild place called West Papua, which is on the same island as Papua New Guinea, but belongs to Indonesia. And it's all like cannibal tribes, bones through your nose, legit jungle. And it's the most technical of all the seven summits. And that's quite a scary one. It's got a really high death rate. Only a few hundred people have ever climbed it because it's expensive to get to. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that was an amazing experience, to be honest. Really amazing. Uh, and that, that's normally 20 grand, right? 
And I was broke at the time because I'm building a house in Thailand. It's taking all my money up. And I was like, there's no way. Why is this cost 20 grand? It's in Indonesia. And I spent months trying to find the Facebook or Instagram of one of the actual guides. And I said, I will pay you personally. Mm. I'm going to fly to Indonesia. I'll meet you. And I found it. And I got it for six grand for me and my mate instead. And And I wrote a blog post about it. And his email is in my blog post so we can bypass these fuckers taking four hundred grand. And you you also made it seven grand now. It was a year ago, so the permit price might increase. But it's a third of the price. And I've got his contact details in my blog post. Oh, so we yeah. did that one. That was an amazing experience. Yeah. And I, that's something I really admire, Johnny, from this conversation is that you're, you know, you're, um, you, you, I feel like you're on a mission as well to, to, yeah, like you celebrate your own successes. You know, you've, you've seen some fabulous sights, but it's not like you're holding on to this and saying, well, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. You, you, you want to make that accessible to other people that have got that same desire and, and want to, to, to go and travel. And in, in, like you said, I've, I've heard of some ridiculous uh, Everest expeditions that are like 200K, and it literally is like glamping on the yeah. side. You know, you've got people carrying excess amount of bags of stuff that they don't really need. I'm guilty of that. We went to Norfolk last week. <laughs> we filled up the back of our 4 by 4 with stuff that we didn't even touch or use. Yeah, right. yeah. So when you said you'd done that, um, was it the 200-kilometre bike ride? Yeah. No, it was 2,000. Sorry, 2,000-kilometre bike ride. Like, you know, what what sort of stuff to you is absolutely essential that's coming on that ride with you? What, <laughs> Man, what? I've, never cy- I've never cycled before, so I didn't even know what a road bike was. <laughs> I'd only ever had my, my fucking BMX as a kid, so they, they give me this thin bike, and I'd never been on a, one of those thin bikes before, which yeah. I now know is called a road bike. <laughs> and I'd never worn those, like, tap dancing shoes that clip into the Please. thing. Oh, and I just kept falling off, cutting my elbows and all. So I had nothing. I had a pair of those like uh, what bib shorts they're called. I'd never heard of any of these terms. That's cycling. That means cycling shorts with like right. a tiny ass. Um, and I just went to decathlon and bought all this stuff and then never used it before. Uh, so I just had a tiny, tiny bag. Yeah, that's all I had. I had a pair of flip flops for the evenings, two pairs of bib shorts and two t-shirts and my phone. That's all I had. And I rented bike. <laughs> and there he is. Um, in particular to the mountaineering and the summits, what what have you been able to take away from that as like a real standout experience? Hmm, I, I took something really in terms of achieving big stuff, right? That year that I failed at Concagua in Argentina, it was, it was a three-week window that no one um, summited, right? So by all intents and purposes, there's every reason for me to not feel defeated by, by my own fault. Literally no one summited for three weeks. It was a wild weather window, which happened. We left. And there was this chick who was on this hardcore Russian chick. She's a real bitch, actually, but I've got nothing but love for her now. We were already 20 days or something into the expedition. Normally it takes 25, 26 days, but we couldn't do the summit attempt. We left. And she fucking stayed, bro, in her tent at base camp with fuck all food in the freezing cold, freak weather, base camp was up to here in snow, covered, and she stayed and waited out those 20, those three weeks, those 20 odd days, and then summited when the weather window passed. And I was back in Thailand, and I seen her on Facebook, and she was on the summit of the mountain, and sat there, and I was like, you're actually a hero. 
and I will never make that mistake again. Yeah, that literally is riding out the storm, right? Unbelievable. I cannot believe it because you've got to think at base camp. Like, well, you, some base camps are okay, but Aconcagua base camp is really basic. There's nothing there. You're pretty miserable there. Mm. Still, okay. it's okay-ish. Like, but you're shitting in a hole and there's no food really, and you're getting sick and your body's wearing down because you're quite high altitude. It's not. You're not happy really. I mean, you're happy to be there because you're grateful for the expedition and you're dreaming of the summit. Yeah. But you're not comfortable. You know, you're there as a means to an end. Mm. And we'd already been there for weeks, and for her to then. And then also, you know, there's a massive weather window that allows you to get off the mountain. Everyone left the mountain apart from her. And you're going back to Mendoza, home of red wine and the hotel. You haven't had a shower in weeks. As soon as you let that into your head, you're like, get me the fuck out of here. This is failure. And that's upsetting. I'm going to have a shower tonight. I'm going to get drunk tomorrow and three bottles of Malbec and live the dream, right? And she had all that. And she had all of us going to that. And she still had the strength of character to be like, no, I'm here to climb the mountain. Like, and that was such strength of character. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot from her. Such a disciplined mindset to. She would have been miserable, and they were running out of food, so she would have been rationing her food. Unbelievable. Yeah. So strong. Have you got any experience of acute mountain sickness? Have you ever, you know, sort of felt bad with the um, at heights? The thing about mountain, mountain sickness is like everyone gets it, it's not binary, it's a gradient from death to feeling perfect. Um, back in the day when I did Kilimanjaro when I was like 24 or whatever with my mate, he's a rugby player, he got quite bad mountain sickness on the top but finished. Yeah. And then my buddy obviously went blind, like I told you, that was a bad one. Yeah. Some some chick had a stroke on Aconcagua the next year with us. That was quite bad. But my mate, my mate he went blind. He's one of my best friends, he's the best man at a wedding. He did Elbrus with me in Russia too. And he got really bad mountain sickness, but he finished it, right? And he came down the mountain and he was a fucking mess. Only in Russia would they let you still summit like that. You know what I mean? They are hardcore. That's what I say about that Aconcagua woman who stayed. She was Russian. They're, they breed them differently in Russia. Beasts, legends. Um, and he had it so he had a bad and he's now he was gonna do Everest with me, but after those two experiences, he's out. I personally haven't had it too bad. I've had banging headaches and not been able to sleep and all that, which is pretty normal once you get to like 7,000 meters. But no, I've been quite lucky so far. But Everest will test me. Yeah, that's that's probably, uh, well, got to be one of the greatest tests on earth, right? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Talk, talk to me very briefly about the, the North and South Pole because um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's a very naive question from myself and I, I didn't do much research before this conversation but it, I just have this vision of just nothing <laughs> just pure whiteness ice you can't see anything from miles around it's probably more gray than it is white and then you know there's this a bit like when you go down to Cornwall <laughs> there's, that, there's that sign there that says you know USA over many thousand miles what, 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 uh, well, South Pole, South Pole, no, you're wrong. I haven't been to South Pole yet. I'm, I'm working on funding for that. North Pole, I've been to. Okay. So South Pole costs 50 grand. Oh, North Pole's 20. So I did it first. <laughs> All dollars, that is. The cheapest way to do the North Pole, I shouldn't promote the guy because he wasn't, he's not very friendly, but is there's an Irish guy who runs a, a, a marathon. He organizes a marathon at, literally at the North Pole every year. And I did that. That's the cheapest way to go there. It's an unreal experience. 
thing is 13 and a half thousand pounds really expensive but it's amazing you take a russian fighter like old school plane the russians have got a russian base at the north pole but the north pole loads of people know this i didn't know anything i never do any research right no the arctic isn't so the seven continents right antarctica is a, is a continent because there's a big land mass over the south pole the north pole isn't a continent because it's actually just a sheet of ice on water oh, right, okay and i didn't know that either so they go they, they drop like hardcore russian marines who dig up a little flat plate space and then they have a russian military plane drops a digger onto the ice and then they make a proper runway and then you take one of these big russian old school planes and it, it actually lands on the ice it's wild mate um and then that, and then the runway broke up and we were there and we were stuck there for two extra days because the runway broke in half and they had to dig a new runway mad uh, and i'd never run a marathon before that was my first ever marathon around the north pole i was fucking freezing like and i was i'd never been to that temperature before so i borrowed this <laughs> this guy in home bangkok i'd never been skiing or anything before from my upbringing right and i borrowed this guy this blogger another blogger in bangkok i borrowed his ski gear and then that's all the only gear I had. And then I turned up at the North Pole and I met these guys who'd done loads of hardcore stuff. And they were like, Well, oh, you look a bit cold. And I was like, Yeah, I'm freezing. Anyway, the time passed on and the buzzer went to say, like, oh, the marathons at the North Pole is starting in two hours. And they all start putting all this specialist gear. And they're like, Johnny, put your gear on. So you heard the buzzer. And I'm like, This is my gear. This is all I have. I had a pair of I was wearing a pair of North Face Gore-Tex like trail running shoes. What, um, what what sort of temperatures was you running in? Like minus 40. Wow. It was freezing, mate. And then the North Pole, because there's no land at the North Pole, it moved. The North Pole stays permanent, obviously, because it's a geographic or whatever mm -hmm. magnetic point. But the ice moves, and you're on the ice, right? So from where the North Pole is at the start, you spend a couple of days at the North Pole while you're there. So by the time you start, by the time you finish the marathon, you were at the North Pole, now you're over here. So then you have to take your helicopter to the North Pole as part of the package. They take you to the actual geographic North Pole at that time. So you can say you've been to the North Pole. And I did that after the marathon. And I have just, like, to go to the North Pole is such a, like, a bucket list, amazing privilege to be there, right? And I got to the North Pole, checked the compass, is this North Pole? Yep. Got my photograph taken by some guy. I don't even know the photo because I've lost contact with the guy. And got straight back on the helicopter because it was so painfully cold and my gear was completely not suitable i was in agony like people stabbing all over my body it was an absolute agony and i got straight back in the chinook thing i was just <laughs> wait, waiting for everyone else to get back on the, the helicopter and like get us out of this place <laughs> what well, um out of interest what was the marathon time uh i finished eighth out of 80. i think it was like five and a half hours or something nice what but the snow, to try eh? but the snow's up to your knee sometimes so it's not like you're running through like heavy snow sometimes it's hard and was there like a minimum equipment sort of required to to complete that nah <laughs> i wouldn't have passed that test <laughs> oh, you the, when you do the marathon de sabla the, the the five day ultra marathon through the sahara it's yeah. really professional and there's kit lists and they come and check that you've got it and you're not allowed to run without it but like rowing the Atlantic or going to the North Pole, just like, it's just on you. So you, you really have gone from extremes, haven't you? You've gone from a minus 40 North Pole marathon to a Sahara desert. And what's, what's the total distance there? 260 miles. 
No, I think it's kilometers. Right, okay. It's 260 kilometers. Uh, sun absolutely beating down on your back. What's that, probably over 50 degrees? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, nah, maybe 40 because it's hot. Yeah. And, you know, like, how do you, um, how do you sort of cope with that? Is it, is it just one step in front of the other all the time or? The, the Sahara one wasn't so bad because I was living in Bangkok and it was April. So anyone who's lived in Thailand, that's hot season. So yeah. I was training in the heat and normally I would train in the mornings at six or seven, but I trained in the afternoon, the mid, mid afternoon heat. Yeah. So I was really okay with the heat in the Sahara. What yeah. killed me was I run them, um, when I finished my every country, I, start, I started a charity called Medita Adventures, right? And we build like malaria clinics and playgrounds and schools around the world for developing communities, right? And in the lead up to the North Pole, I, we were building a school in, Del in New Delhi in India. I was training in India in April. So all my runs every day were like plus 40. And then as soon as the school was finished and the trip was over, I had to fly to Svalbard and then the North Pole, which was minus 40. It was 80 degrees different. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> the Sahara then wasn't so bad because it's 40 degrees or 35 in Thailand anyway in that month. So actually, I, I was at a real advantage in, this, in the Sahara one, to be honest. I didn't find it that bad. Like, tough, but, but not so bad. Yeah. I suppose it's what you acclimatise to, like your training yeah. obviously stead you in good fest there, and that sort of leads me nicely on to, to where you're at now. I know obviously you're confined by your, your hotel room, but you've, you've uh, managed to get yourself a nice little, um, the second bedroom you converted into a gym. Uh, yeah. was, that, was that part of the choice when you, you signed up for the, the level of um, quarantine? Yeah, but this is not some like crazy expensive place. This is um, 55,000 baht, which is about 1,200 quid. Still cheaper than the London ones where you're yeah. stuck in a tiny, so it's not like crazy expensive or anything. And yeah. Um, yeah, I chose this one. It's called a fitness suite. And then the food every day is also fitness orientated, like low fat, high protein. Brilliant. If anyone's doing quarantine in Thailand, this is the one. Yeah. It's, it's called the, um, it's in an Ibis, Ibis Styles Kausan, fit 1,200 quid. Such money well spent. Yeah, there's a exercise bike, like a, a little mini work be workout bench with weights, uh, treadmill, brilliant. Cool. And is your does your training always is it always goal orientated? Is it always working towards your next sort of mission or, or <laughs> deep? How, how does your training philosophy? What's your outlook on your on your training and your fitness? First of all, I kill myself when I train. So anyone who trains with me has to train like that or I train on my own. If you can talk and all that, you're not training hard enough. I honestly believe that. Yeah. My mum's got Parkinson's, right? And she's 72. And for her 70th birthday, I organized a charity trip to Japan through my blog and her. And we climbed Mount Fuji for her 70th with Parkinson's, raised 20 grand for Parkinson's. And she had to train for six months and she had me in her ear. So that's just, just to say, if I... Put my mum through that. Imagine what I do to my actual friends who train <laughs> with me. Um, yeah, so I train really hard. No joke. I want to. I want to be lying down, not being able to talk. Otherwise, I feel like I haven't trained. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, like I'm a guy like everyone else. I've still got an ego, even though I try to work on it. I know I've got a big ego. It's part of this type A bullshit. Um, sometimes I, I find in moments of weakness or periods of weakness, training for the mirror, beach muscles, I call it, right? But they do, it doesn't make me happy. I can only ever do that for a short period of time until I, like, 
think, what are you doing, Johnny? Like train for something functionally. You know what I mean? Yeah. So even when I was on my row, I was getting really skinny and I was in really good shape before I got on the row. Um, and then my body was just wrecked after the row. And then I ate loads of shit and I put on like five kilos, whatever, with, I said it with my mom straight after the row before I'm um, here now. So now I've got like rocking the dad bod. And I was thinking like, I need to get back in proper shape again. Like, so I look good and feel good. And even now I'm training hard twice a day at the moment in quarantine. I'm starting to think, yeah, it's nice to look good. And, and of course you should have a high self-esteem. It's, it's important to look good. I, I don't deny that at all, but not at the, not, it's not the be all and end all. And already my steadfast decision to build my beach muscles back is already starting to slip. And I'm thinking, no, better to train for something cool and achieve something. Mm. I think once you sort of agree on whatever, whatever it is you're training for, whatever goal you're working towards, for me, it just gives that added intensity. Like I, I know that I'm, I'm doing man versus mountain in September. So What's that? 22 miles up and down Snowden. I love it. That's cool. I've, um, up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, you start off, there's a castle. Is it in Carnforth? Right. I'm probably killing that pronunciation of where that castle is. But you start sea level and then you work up. And I believe you, you go up and down twice. And then the last bit they call the vertical kilometer, which is like a load of obstacles chucked in just to like kick you while you're down, basically. So the, the total mileage is 22 it was 24 but it got postponed last year and for some reason it's lost two miles um that sounds brilliant but yeah that's going to be my first sort of yeah i've never never run a marathon i've got the, the longest i've done was yesterday which was just under 18 miles so yeah good stuff mate what's the total ascent on this one it's that's a great question um i know snowden's just over a thousand meters so yeah. I think off the top of my head, I'll have to check it out, but I think it's around between two and 3,000. Um, so that's a lot. We've we done what, what we call the lap of the woods near where I live. Apparently like GB uh, cross country running team used to come to is Langdon Hills and it's really, really hilly. Um, and it's, that's a thousand foot. And we so like 300 meters. Yeah, it's like a third of, of, of what Snowden is, but um, it's you know, <laughs> round here in Essex, it's relatively flat, so um, it's the best I can well, do. I was actually in Snowden two weekends ago, I mate. Mean, it's so beautiful there, I wasn't ready for how beautiful it was. It was really nice. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the three peaks because um, that's that's on a little bucket list of mine that I would definitely be yeah, doing. Use that, use that company that I used, what are they called? Active Mountaineering. Yeah, I see that, yeah. <laughs> It's because it's expensive to do three peaks. You know, I didn't know that. I was like, let's do it. I was in recovery mode from the row. I was like, let's do something when I'm here with my mates. It's like, let's go and do this. And we were going to self-drive. And then by the time you put the petrol and all that stuff in and, and you have to drive when you're knackered, yes. it's, you're talking about a couple of hundred quid anyway, an active mountaineering that's only 250 and you join a group and they yeah. do all the driving for you, guides to make sure you don't get lost and keep you under the 24 hours. Brilliant. Mm. And it's a really fun day. Yeah, I, I just, um, I've, I've been, I went, I've only ever been skiing once and that was for my dad's 60th birthday. So I've been to the Alps. So I've, I have actually been on mountains, but uh, <laughs> um, I just, I don't know, I've got this yearning to just be at the, at the summit. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do one in the UK, I might as well do all three. Right. And then if you're going to do all three, you might as well do the, 
the free peaks and under 24 hour challenge. So that's, this is how I that's what I thought when I was going to do the marathon. I was like, well, I might as well do the North Pole marathon. If you're going to do an ultra, you might as well do the um, MDS, the marathon de Sable. And if you're going to climb a mountain, you might as well climb Everest. Yeah, I like it. I like your theory. <laughs> Um, I want to talk to you uh, about your blog, and I want to—is that just something that you you done freestyle when you was out traveling all these countries? Was it was it for like a, that self-reflection point? Was it almost like a journal stroke diary, or how, how did it come around? Um, I'd been teaching English in Thailand and Korea from like twenty-two to twenty-six, let's say. Every time I ran out of money, I'd go back to Korea and then keep traveling with the money that I saved. And then back, run out of money back to Korea. Um, and then I went to Australia on a working holiday visa and got a real job in an office. Brutal. Uh, and then I started my blog during that year in Australia. And I wanted to show people, because um, I was still broke at the time. I traveled loads, but I was still broke, like on small English teaching salaries and all that. But loving life, really loving life and having an adventure and feeling like I was alive. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show people from my kind of upbringing and others, but especially people who don't think that they can go and do cool stuff because they don't have the funding behind them. That, look at me, like I'm still stone cold broke and I've done loads of cool shit, look at this. So a lot of the time I used to write about like, I've done six months travel on $2,000, 1,500 quid or whatever. And like loads of people can scramble together 1,500 quid over a month or two, work two or three jobs. Yeah. I was like, you can come and do this stuff. You don't need to look at me paragliding in the Himalayas and Manali in India. And then I'm in Kathmandu doing the Everest base camp trek and all this. You don't need to look at me doing that. You can come and do that. If you book that on G Adventures, that's going to cost you three grand. Cost me, just rock up in Kathmandu and ask someone to take you 300 quid. Like, you can do these things. Um, so it started off like that. And then, and then I announced. And then anyway, I started getting advertising on my blog, um, but kept the same ethos for the blog. And then I wrote a blog post. It turned overnight, it turned quite lucrative. It was wild. And to cut a long story short, I made a million dollars in three years, right? And I wrote a blog post, how I made a million dollars in three years. And that went viral in like 2014 or 2015 or something. Which is a bit annoying because my whole blog was about come and do all this cool stuff. You don't have to, and and and, and it, slowly building up a readership, but nothing massive. And then I write one article about money, and everyone's like, "Check this guy out," which is bullshit. But that's the world we live in. Yeah. Um, and then that increased my traffic a lot. And then I announced that I was trying to visit every country, and I was one of the youngest people ever to have done it. So when I finished that, it went viral again. Um, and then I just kept doing it. Really, it's just kind of a reflection of my life and yeah it's a bit of a journal it's just kind of showcasing the, the life you can live if if you really are willing to choose the, the, a different path but you it's all about like i say law of attraction and, and willing to make sacrifices you know i get messages on my instagram all the time like how do you do what you do i'm like do you know how i did what i did i, I taught english in thailand for 400 quid a month i ran out of money i slept in bus stations in korea taught English there, you know, and then now, yes, now I can fly in business class and build my nice house in Thailand, but I've been doing this 14 years. Yeah. So like my mom said, you work you work every hour for 10 years to become an overnight success, you know, like as if someone's just gifted you, yeah. but you've grafted and grafted and grafted for it. And then now it looks nice. Yeah, I know it looks nice, but there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears before you get to that stage. I love the extreme ownership 
mentality. You know, where discipline equals freedom. People will see this highlight reel of, you know, you you on that rower or you on this summit or you doing this crazy activity that, you know, from someone's comfortable armchair, oh, I'd love to do that. Well, you could and you can, but you choose not to. You know, we're all accountable for our own actions. We are, yeah. we're all in charge of our own destiny to, to you know, to some point. No, um, completely. I'm a firm believer that you know if if you if you vision something, if you're able to, you know, even when I used to do Olympic lifting quite uh, regularly, that you know, if you can visualise you landing and standing that heavy snatch or clean and jerk up, versus me going to the bar going, oh, well, this is close to a PB here. I'm feeling a bit. Uh, you, you can just talk yourself out of it. You psych yourself out, and you know that analogy of. Of walking up to that bar saying shit this is heavy too i'm gonna fucking rip this off the floor and i'm gonna land it and it's it might not be the beautifulest uh, snatch in the world but fuck it i'm still gonna hang on to that bar and so i'm gonna stand it up you know you can take forward into any adventure and any discipline and, and and any sort of lifestyle or motivation that you've got and um it, look, it's 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 great that you're showcasing what you're doing. I love the way that you talk with this honesty, and uh, you, you you can tell that you know your humility, uh, the experiences that you have have obviously humbled yourself. I love the way that you say that um, you know for you to do what you have to do, you you have to be selfish. Um, you know, and I use this phrase or this hashtag that be obsessed. Because, you know, you look at the Michael Jordans of the world, you look at the Kobe Bryants and, yeah, like they're, they're one in seven billion. Um, but there's, that you, can be, you can be in your own environment or you're in zone, your own zone. You can be a Michael Jordan in whatever passion or endeavour you choose. But you have to understand that it's not a flick of the finger and you jump. You know, no one jumps on the top of a mountain. You have to climb that bastard. You know, and that can be, it, it could be a gloriously sunny day at the bottom, but you get to the top, it's horizontal needles of snow smashing you in the face and it's so cold that, you know, you, you're considering pissing yourself to warm yourself up and, you know, all the different things that come with hardship, you know, it's character building. And for me, that's what life's all about, you know. Never sit in the comfy chair is, is a phrase that I've coined. And, and oh, nice, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's, uh, it's it's fantastic to, to to speak to someone who's got such amazing experiences and, and you know, and I know it's from North Face, but I just love that never s stop exploring uh, mentality. It's, it's amazing. Um, I think, Johnny, now's the perfect time for us to wrap up and ask us our standard chasing discomfort questions. So, number one, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. Um, I know this is probably supposed to be quite quick pace, but you know, my childhood, whether it's my attitude with authority, I'd never had any leader in my life, apart from the love that my mom gave me from a loving perspective. I never had any leader. I honestly cannot tell you one person I've mimicked or taken advice from. I know it's a weird thing, but it's true. I love that, um, you know, for me growing up, when I was that teenager that knew it all, uh, you know, and I used to be a right little shit back in the day. And it's only now when, when my twins were born, I've got four year old twins and within like, once you come down from that emotional high of them being born and they come out of hospital. And I remember saying to my mum, like I was just so grateful 
Um, you know, my dad was around, but they, they split up when I was two. But just the overwhelming love and gratefulness that I probably still don't show her to this day as much as, as, as I mean it. Like I don't, I don't say it enough to her. Or hopefully she feels that I do. But it's just, and you know, watching my wife with the twins, it's such a crazy level of love that you, you don't even think is achievable until, um, until like, you know, that, the children come along. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, what's the one non-negotiable rule that you live by? It's cliche, but never give up on your dreams. Never. It's so true, isn't it? But not giving up your dreams doesn't mean sharing a fucking Instagram quote and think that that means that you're motivated. <laughs> you know, your hands need to bleed. You need to, you might need to get a bank loan to do it. You have to, it'll, it'll be painful emotionally, physically, financially. It'll hurt you, mm. but you can't give up on them. But if it doesn't hurt you, then it's not really a dream, is it? So if, if it's easily attainable, well, what kind of dream is that? Yeah. For me, like, it's like this snowflake mentality. No time for it. We're too scared of offending everyone, anyone. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, there's obviously, you know, bullying's a big issue, especially for kids in school. Uh, you know, you, domestic abuse, violence, you know, I'm not trying to promote anything like that at all. But you have to appreciate that we are an animal. And that animal at some times will get mixed up and will do things wrong. That chimp brain will kick in. It won't be the human. It won't be the computer. And we'll go to defend. We'll go to protect what we think is right in that moment. And, you know, where people find, find these inspirational feats of strength from, you know, a mother lifts up a two-ton two car off of her child or, you know, like the, there is so much human um, potential and, and, you know, we are capable of so much more. And this whole, like, I love tech, you know, it, it helps me massively in my job. Um, but when I look around in restaurants and I see like a group of six teenagers and they are just glued to their phone, oh, uh, or even even now I see these kids on these electronic scooters, yeah, like like great if if that's going to be your car, but still go out and and play team sports, rugby, yeah. or just just get involved and just you know play in the range, climb that tree, you know, do all the stuff that is is. For me, like what we've evolved to do, you know, our body is a fantastic biological piece of kit. The brain is the most uh, undiscovered, un uh, non-understood um, element that there is about us, and, and yet we 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 tend to switch it off by living this comfortable life. But you've got me on a rant, so I'm going to stop now. I agree. I agree completely. And perfect timing, really, when we talk about the Instagram quotes. But do you have a favourite quote? You're never as young as you are tonight. Love it. Which basically means, if not now, when? Like, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Dream car? Porsche 911 from the 90s. Early 90s, late 80s, 911. Yeah. 
I, I fell in love with, I'd done a track day and out of all the cars, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, I just walked away in awe of the Porsche. Just, I, I never expected it, but uh, yeah, beautiful. But those late 80s, early 90s ones, timeless. Two dinner guests you'd invite, either dead or alive. Ah, fuck, I just thought about this in the shower this morning and I had two that was like, people ask me this a lot and I always forget and I was like, this is it. Oh, fuck. David Goggins. Stay hard. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> I go David Goggins and I go JP, Jordan Peterson. Nice. Nice. That's, that'll be a cracking conversation. Yeah. I've done the, um, the Goggins challenge in March. Yeah. Every four hours, four miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the boys said, we're, we're so close to two marathons in two days. If we change one of the four mile legs to 6.2, then we've done it. We've done two in two. So yeah, my feet didn't thank me after, but that was a good yeah. experience. Ring walk stroke hype song. What's the one that gets you fired up? Uh, Juicy by no Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, love it, love it. Book you've read more than once and why? Ooh, loads actually. I really like the four hour work week. Yeah. I like the, I like the alchemist. I've read it loads of times and I quite like rich dad, poor dad as well. What's the, what's the alchemist? I've not heard of that one. Oh mate. It's amazing by Paolo Coelho. It's kind of, uh, it's a fictional story set in, I don't know, the 1400s or whatever. Some guys in the South of Spain moving on to Morocco, but it's about how the universe can provide for you as long as you're willing to accept it. That, that's the, that's the, the ethos behind it. Really, yeah. Story behind it. It's a, get it off Audible or whatever tonight. Yeah, check it yeah. out. Great stuff. Right. And they're about to make a Hollywood movie out of it, but it's been a bestseller for years. So read it before the movie comes out. Yeah, yeah. The film always spoils it, right? Yeah, exactly. So read it before it. <laughs> On that note, favorite film? Uh, Lost in Translation with um, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. I also love 300, though. Yeah. And Closer. They're my three favorite movies. You know, Closer? Was that. Who, who was the main actor in that? Clive Owen, Natalie Portman, um, Jude Law, and I think Julia Roberts. Yeah. I, I, it's dark as fuck. I think I, I watched it, but a long time ago for me to not remember enough. Oh, man, it's so dark. I like that. I like movies that are dark. I like to get escape from my life and focus on the emotions of the movie. So yeah. I forget about my stresses. Closer, Lost in Translation, 300. Yeah. 300s, um, yeah, that's up there. With... I love it. What do you do when you start feeling down? Oh, there's two answers to this. I hit the, I go for a long run or hit the gym is what I should do and try to do or hit the booze was probably what I do more often. I wanted to talk to you about that because you said you've got uh, like a mechanism to keep a handle on that. So uh, yeah. explain that to our listeners. Yeah, so I've always drunk too much, to be honest. Being Irish, it's an easy excuse. My father was an alcoholic. All his side family were alcoholics. My granny drunk too much. Um, and like I live quite a crazy lifestyle. I'm always in reunions. And I used to live in Australia here or there. I'm in and out of Thailand where I've lived. So I've always got reunions. I run a lot of those charity trips 
I run a lot of trips through my blog to like Yemen and Syria and Iraq. I run these crazy trips to crazy places. So I'm always with like having fun, loving people coming on the trip. So, and that's their one holiday. I'm doing it 10 times a year to different places. So every, I'm always on people's big life trip. So it's always like booze, booze, booze everywhere I go. Yeah. And I don't have to be asked twice. So it's like, it's my issue, not theirs. Mm. I just started thinking, I mentioned that I drunk far too much after I finished my countries when I was kind of depressed. And um, I tried to tally it up and thinking like 360 days in a year, let's say, I must be drinking on 250 days. I must be, maybe, and maybe even more, if I'm honest. And then I did the next 2018, still drunk far too much, but got ahead. It, got, it was okay with my mental health, but still drinking far too much because I was doing more and more trips. That was growing as part of my brand. And 2019, the same, our charity was growing. We did like 10 projects, built schools and stuff in loads of different countries. And it was always a cool party environment. So I still drunk far too much. And then 2020 last year, my mate was the same. The guy who went blind, one of my best mates on the mountain. He also was drinking too much. He comes on a lot of those trips with me anyway. And I said, let's do this thing. Let's do like a voucher system. You got 75 vouchers a year. And we keep it on a Google spreadsheet and you record every time you drink. And that means you can drink once in one week and then twice the next week, once in one week, twice the next week. So it's not that restrictive. Yeah. To anyone who doesn't have a problem with alcohol, that mm -hmm. sounds easy. But if you've got a problem with alcohol, and you actually when you think how many days a week you drink, which for me would have been five, six days, um, it was actually really restrictive. So then last year I drank on something like 70 days because of this voucher system. And then this year we dropped it to 50 tokens, so essentially once a week. And, yeah. we've, and, we've got, and there's now five, five of my friends now doing it with us. Three more friends joined, so there's five of us on this Google spreadsheet, and we record it every time. Oh, cool. Great advice. Yeah. I've actually been, and I, I use this word lightly when I say sober, but I've not had a drink since the 7th of February, um, 20, yeah, 2020. So just before the pandemic broke. For a year. And I, yeah, I, and I'm, I was never a big drinker, but I was a binge drinker. So I wouldn't drink for six weeks and then I'd have a crazy night out and drink, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Joe Drew, I've been drinking bottles of Samsung out of a wok in his kitchen and saucepans and all sorts of weird shit that you wake up the next morning and feel really guilty and can't remember what you've done. Um, I know it well. But, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know, just had a shift and just fall. The hangovers kill me, like two, three days of me feeling bad, real bad. And I just thought, well... Yeah, knock it on. The, I'm, no, I'm not saying I'm never going to drink again. And, you know, I do kind of have this inkling to, like, try some whiskey recently for some reason. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm going to give it a couple of years to just kill it. Wow. And then, um, yeah, I'll, I'll see what happens. Go with the flow. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a poison. It is literally a poison. Yeah. But the thing is, I love it. I love getting drunk with my friends. So yeah. I, need, I, I don't want to cut it out. See, I, I, love it. I love the drinking. And I love that night and that laugh, but the, the two or three days after just does me. Um, right, let's get back on track. Spirit animal. Oh, fuck. What animal do I think is cool? Mm, I don't know, a chimp maybe? I really like the tapir. You know what a tapir is? No, they're the tiny little monkeys. They're these like fucking weird animals that look like half warthog, half anteater, half elephant. 
Oh yes, I do know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's your mantra when the going gets tough? Ah, you know, it's not a mantra for me. I just know how much I'll hate myself if I quit. And no matter how much it hurts in that moment, I know the pain of hating myself for the rest of my life will hurt more. Love it. Favorite treat? Favorite treat. So it could be like a dessert. Oh, apart from boo booze, obviously, first and foremost, but apart from booze, in Ireland, we call them caramel squares. I think in England, you call them millionaire shortbread. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mate, I could eat that by the tray, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The chocolate, caramel, and then like biscuit yeah. eating it. Yeah. Holy shit. I, mean, I had so much of those the last fifth, five weeks after the row. <laughs> I love them. We ask our guests' favorite place in the UK, hmm. which I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting question, that. You know, my sister lived in London for the last 10 years. She just left and moved to Whitley Bay near Newcastle. My mum's just actually left Ireland to move up there to be nearer. All right. um, but I can't say that's my favourite because I've just experienced it for the first time. Mm. I actually really love London, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I like it more now I've got a bit of money. I certainly didn't like it when I went back before my blog was successful. That, that's a stressful time when you're when you're hurting but yeah i really like london a lot cool and uh, extra bonus question then because ah, sorry do you know what is actually my favorite place so i love london to be honest i've had to live anywhere probably choose london edinburgh i love edinburgh yeah See, I've, I've never actually been to scotland and i've got to get that ticked off i've got to get up there and um well you go to fort when you do when you do ben nevis you'll stay in fort williams so you make a weekend of it and go to edinburgh as well so if you take the train it goes via edinburgh right okay brilliant say yeah great advice um so obviously with with that extra bonus question then favorite place in the world and that could be something that's personal to you i know obviously you live in thailand yeah chiang mai chiang mai thailand best place in the world mm. beautiful simple answer it's, it is the best place in the world top bucket list pick this could be either one that you've done or one that you're planning to do uh, summit of everest mate easy money yeah I thought you'd say that. I'm already focused on it. I think about it every single day. What, what, um, so for you, obviously, you're talking about 2023. Yeah. Is the prep work started now? Not really, no. I would do it next year if I could, but I signed up for Denali, which is North America's highest mountain. Last year it was cancelled. This year it was cancelled. So it's been pushed to right. next year and it won't give me a refund. So I have to use that money with them or lose it. So I'll do Denali first. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. what's your favorite and least favorite exercise movements oh wow holy shit many are not many are my least favorite <laughs> you mean in the gym right so not counting running or anything it could be a, 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 any movement really the worst i think are squat jumps awful I mean, squats generally are quite tough, but there's kind of joy in the actual squat rack. Squat yeah. jumps during a hip class or whatever. Awful. Mm. Yeah, I really struggle with jumping lunges. They eat me up. Same thing. It's the same, yeah. it's the same feeling. Yeah, jumping lunges too. After about 10, you're knackered. No matter how good shape you're in, yeah. you're, you're burning after about 10. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, but squat lunges too, actually. Yes, those right beside each other are fucking awful. And what's, uh, what's the exercise movement that you absolutely love? I love loads. I love absolutely loads. I really love I love pull-ups and chin-ups. Yeah. But those. I hate them when, when, you're, when you're at failure and you've still got to finish your set. I hate them in that moment. But like when I'm thinking, because I'm, I'm going to the gym straight after this call, and there is no pull-up bar. And I was thinking, like, if, what would I want to do now? I'd want to do pull-ups. And pull-ups are the thing that, in my mind, if I haven't done it for ages, talk, you talk about, like, having chimp brain, right? Like, I feel like I want to get on a pull-up bar and do it, like, yeah. whether it's the kid in you or the animal in you, even now, you know, that yeah. when you hang off it and you feel the stretch and you just want to, and you want to lift yourself up to it, I feel like it's a natural movement. I've been doing it for a couple of years now, but just accumulating two, three minutes hanging a day. And... Just, just from that twisting in the lower back and your shoulders, you just feel like your spine realigns. Like it's yeah, and you know you can, you don't need to have an expensive pull-up bar. You've got a tree in your garden. You can go and jump on that. Um, yeah, yeah, like a playground. You know, a swing bar. Just go and grab on something and hang out for a bit. Um, favorite sport? Football. What team? Liverpool. I knew you was going to say that. <laughs> half, half of Ireland, mate. <laughs> and the other half support um, Celtic, is it? Celtic. Yeah, well, there's Celtic and Rangers in yeah. there. It's a whole political thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to a younger you? I would get myself to start blogging earlier. Uh, I would, I wish I knew about how to invest my money before I made money. I would teach myself the absolute basics of investment, which I only recently finally feel I've got a grasp of at 37. If I had known that at 25, I'd probably have doubled the amount of money I had now. I think financial responsibility is a double whammy. One, you should be financially responsible. You shouldn't spend all your fucking money. Just because you've got a bit more money doesn't mean you should have uh, Gucci sneakers. Be sensible, invest young and heavy um, and financial literacy, knowing what to invest in. But both those things are really important. I, I've always been very careful with my money because um, I come from a poor up, upbringing. So when I started making money, I'm very careful and I try to save over 50% of everything I earn, more, more like 75% and, and invest. But I wish I knew how to invest it like I do now. I would have I doubled it and doubled it again in, in the 10 so years I've been making money. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. And um, future plans. So we know obviously you've got your mountain climb next year and Everest hopefully the year after. Have you got anything in between, any sort of craziness you're sketching on or working yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. I've got, I'm running a charity trip to Tanzania to run the Serengeti Marathon in November. Nice. And bringing, bringing my mum. My mum's going to walk a half marathon. We're raising money for Cure Parkinson's again. We've got 20 people coming. And then we've got a school build with the Burmese refugees in January with a private company through my charity. So there's 30 of them coming over to finish the school. And then I think before that Tanzania trip, I'm going to organize a cool trip to either Mauritania in West Africa or back to Yemen. Hopefully you won't have um, as many issues getting in this time. I know how to do it now. I'm in the know. <laughs> Where, where did the birth of the charity come around? Because it's amazing work that, you know, and, I, and I, we've barely scratched the surface on it. And I think you, you need to dedicate some time to that because I've um, always 
admirable of anyone who's who's able to give up their time and, and efforts to help other people. It, it kind of happened by mistake. So I was in West Africa, spending a year traveling through West Africa and the same journey that I smuggled myself into, into Liberia and got arrested. And I was doing it with my mate who was living in Bangkok with me at the time, a Canadian guy. And he came to Africa with me for the second half of the journey. And we just, like, travel's given me everything. I started off poor, started a blog. Visit, my blog made me money and allowed me to visit every country in the world and all this. It's given me everything, the travel world. And I owe everything to travel. Um, and him and I thought, we were in West Africa, obviously, which is hugely poverty-stricken. We were like, let's do some something. Let's give back in any way that we can. That's not just handing 20 quid to someone asking for money, right? So then we decided, like, with my social media and my blog and stuff, I would write a blog post saying, like, does anyone want to come and travel with me in Senegal for free? I'll pay for your flight and I'll pay for you to travel with me for two weeks. And the way to do that is give me 10 bucks for one ticket. Give me 20 bucks for three tickets. And I'll put it in a hat and I'll pull the number out and whoever wins. Whoever that is, I'll fly them. And whatever money we've got in this pool, I'm going to give it to a charity in Senegal. And the, me, my mate, and the winner will all go and visit the charity and we'll see where the money's going. So we did that. And we raised seven grand or something, like nothing major. Mm. And this girl who never left the USA won, right? And she came to Senegal and met us there. And uh, what happened was loads of people who donated were like, fuck it, I don't care that I didn't want win. Can I just come to Senegal with you anyway? We'll just pay. Like, tell us what we have to pay. And I was like, oh, fucking hell. Like, I'm just backpacking with no plans or anything. And I was, me and Josh were like, all right, uh, give us, it was so cheap, $999 for two weeks traveling around Senegal. Backpacking, hardcore though, rough. And about eight or nine people did it, I think, or 10 in the end. And we had a brilliant trip. And then, but the money was spread a little bit too thin. We give a lot, we give lots of rice donations to families who'd lost people during the, uh, the migrant crisis. And we kitted out a whole football club with uh, sports gear and all this stuff. Anyway, it got spread quite thin. Oh, and we built 50 uh, market stalls for women who had to sit on the floor and sell their stuff. Now they could sit on a chair with some dignity and sell their stuff on top of the, on the table, which is cool. And um, still, I felt, felt it was spread a little bit too thin. So when me and Josh moved back to Thailand, um, we decided that we would control the charity next time, the, the charitable thing. So I know a guy who runs a school, like a, a poor school in Cambodia. So we would build him a playground. This community had never had a playground before. And we would physically build a playground ourselves. And this time we, through my blog, we put it on, the first time we didn't have a website or anything. But this time we built an itinerary and said it's two grand each because we lost money in the first one. We had to subsidize it. Mm -hmm. um, it's two grand each. And... You can, and, and we still had people donate and the winner would come free. And we, and we raised like 20 grand now. So everyone's seen that it worked the first time, even though it was a bit chaotic in Senegal, actually is a thing this time. So like 20 people came this time and it was just brilliant. We built this amazing playground for this community. Kids had never seen a playground before. Mm. They were like, we've got a video of it on my YouTube. I'm not a YouTuber, but someone did a video for us. Yeah. Like kids running, like hundreds of them. We had to be like, the teachers being like, this stuff isn't built for 400 kids on a slide, like get them back, it's cool. And then the next year we did it again, we did it twice the following year, two projects this time, a, a school for the Burmese refugees, and I think also a school, a kindergarten in Burma, in Myanmar. And the following year we did four, and then the following year we did eight. 
and then uh, last year we had to cancel everything. So we've donated over a quarter of a million now. Must be such a rewarding, uh, special moment to sort of step back and see those kids that have never had yeah, it's cool. playground to just yeah, just play. It's just cool, Jags. It's a win-win. The communities get these cool projects. What would normally be profit for a for a tour company, an adventure company, we use for the project, so we don't make it. And then we get, to, and then what happens is we do like two. We do the first three days of the project. We finish the project. We have local engineers build it, and then we come and finish it for the open ceremony. And then we go and travel for ten days in the country after. And then it's just a cool group of people too, because we always do it in adventurous countries like Ethiopia. We did one, Jordan. We did one. Um, we've done it in loads of cool countries. So the kind of people who come on those trips who want to go to like cool countries and give something back it's cool people too so we have a great time on it as well johnny you're an inspiring individual um you know nothing short of uh, admiration for everything you do and, and you know it's heartwarming that um you know you talk so openly and honestly honestly and and you know it's just it, it touches me that you know you you're so honest that you have this selfish ego drive but yet the other side of the coin, you're talking about building all these playgrounds for these children. Um, and yeah, it, it's been an honor, an absolute honor to sit down and chuck you. Um, really appreciate Thank you. your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Where no can people find out more about your blog and all the good work that you do? Um, so the blog itself, the actual website where I write about stuff that I'm doing and, and stuff that I think is, is called onestepforward.com. So that's O-N-E-S-T-E-P, and then the number four, ward.com. Because my surname is Ward, so one step ward.com. Um, and then Instagram is also one step forward with the number four. And then anyone who wants to do any do any of these cool adventure charity trips, it's uh, the website is called Mudita Adventures. That's M-U-D-I-T-A, Adventures. Mudita is a Buddhist word. Um, that means you get your happiness from giving other people happiness. So that's the whole charitable aspect of it, which is cool. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes for sure. And um, yeah, it's been amazing chatting to you and we're looking forward to uh, seeing what you get up to in the future. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks, Joe. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny.